Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Oh my goodness, it's It Could Happen Here, a podcast that is about... Things falling apart are dystopian now and tomorrow, uh, and for the last several days has been heavily about the Consumer Electronics Show, which is a huge event every year where 120 to 150,000 people flood into Las Vegas to show off all of the new gadgets and to have big fancy panels on the future of technology. And this has been a particularly good year for the dystopia beat part of that because the entire industry is obsessed right now with artificial intelligence. Now, there's a couple reasons for this. Um, Every laptop manufacturer is basically throwing out laptops with uh, AI assistance. Microsoft's is co-pilot. And they're doing this because laptop sales have stalled. A lot of people, like the pandemic was great for laptop sales, and then people stopped buying them because most people don't need to replace their laptops very often. So there's this desperate hope that by scaring everybody into thinking they need AI immediately, they can get folks to buy a new raft of machines. And outside of that, it's just, as I'm sure you're aware, with interest rates where they are, companies, tech companies, particularly startups, are having trouble getting VC money, venture capital money invested in them. So there's this kind of desperate hope that by plugging AI constantly, they can fill in the gap. So today... You know, we have probably in a week or two, we're going to have be putting out a long investigation based on a number of panels we went to with executives from Google, from weirdly enough, McDonald's, from Adobe, from NVIDIA, uh, from the Consumer Electronics Association and multiple government agencies, including DHS, on what they see as the future of AI. That's going to be some pretty in-depth reporting. But today we want to talk about 
the AI products that we've been seeing. And as a spoiler, they're basically all the dumbest shit you've ever heard of. So I want to introduce our panel today, uh, coming back after catching a horrible, horrible lung infection, throat infection, throat, some kind throat, of infection. infection. Yeah, Garrison got strep throat. Um, and despite the fact that we've been hanging out together, I did not, which does prove I'm genetically superior. We also have uh, Tavia Mora coming back, our uh, our technical expert. Hello, Tavia. Howdy, everybody. Mm -hmm. And for the first time on, well, no, not for the first time, for the third time on It Could Happen Here, the upcoming host of the Cool Zone Media tech-focused show, Better Offline, Ed Zitron. Ed! Wagwan. Hmm? Hello. How's oh. it going? Yeah, oh, okay. sorry. Hi. <laughs> yeah, hit my head on the way in. Yeah, it's a truly awful show this year. I, the thing that I said to Robert yesterday when we were talking about the show and this really stood out to me is, if you had told me this was 2021, I'd have believed you. It doesn't feel, despite the use of the word AI, it does not feel like tech has actually moved that far. And it's very strange. Yeah, there was this period of time after the iPhone came out where every year there would be really big leaps in the tech you saw. And this part of, I think, why they're leaning on AI so heavily is otherwise it's just the same laptop, smartphones, speakers, connected gadgets, you know, autonomous cars and shit that we've been seeing for years. And they really haven't jumped forward much. But, you know, the downside of that is a lot of things. But the upside of that is people are increasingly cramming AI into insane shit uh, in the hopes that somebody will want to buy it. And so I want to start off, Ed, since you're, uh, you're, you're, you are not just our newest host, but also a Las Vegas native. I think people could probably assume that from your Vegas accent. Yes, natural. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is your favorite <laughs> or the first AI product you want to get into today? I want to talk about the Rabbit, the Rabbit R1. Oh, God, yes. So this thing is a square box, and I can't tell if it acts without your phone or with your phone, but it uses AI. You you speak into it like a walkie-talkie, and it does a series of actions based on what you say. So it can do all the things that Siri could do five years ago, like change music and start. But it also has like a 360-degree camera, which can, based on the extremely awkward and agonizing like hour-long demo, 25-minute, yeah. pardon me, it felt like an hour. Um, it can look at a picture of Rick Astley and and start very and after several agonizing seconds, start playing "Never Give You Up." It can also, it claims, do a series of nuanced actions, like you can say, "Get me a cab home," and also put on my tunes, and also change the air conditioner to seventy four degrees, all in one one sentence. Now you may think. Why do I need to spend $200 on a device to do this? And the answer is you don't. You do not need to. This thing looks cool. And I, on some level, I'm just glad we're getting new tat. Yeah, the design is not bad. It's like yeah. a, a square. It looks like it's maybe two, two and a half inches by two and a half inches or so, something like that. Yeah, a little screen. It's like well designed from an industrial design standpoint. And I think the big, yeah, it, it looks like it's just that it it's a, it's a, basically a Siri that can use app. It can use yeah. Uber. It could book a flight for you. One of the things they show is it like planning a vacation in London for you, which does seem to kind of go against the point of like going somewhere new and like figuring out what you want to do there as opposed to it's basically pulling from a list. I'm sure in the AI wrote of like top 10 things to do in London. And it's just very weird because all of these tech guys who they very loudly claim they're free spirits, they're independent, they're not controlled by any authority, they cannot be manipulated. 
all desperately want a machine to tell them exactly what the hell to do with their lives. And it's so bizarre because they, I, we were discussing the different articles about this and people trying to argue why this thing needs to exist. It's like, oh, it takes out the friction between all these apps. I'm sorry. I just don't think there's that much friction. Pull up my phone. I'm on Uber. Yes. Right? I pull out my phone. I, I pull up Grubhub. I order food. Yeah. It's very simple. It's remarkably easy. I don't see how talking to a square is better. Like, it's the same. Like, I could call someone on the phone and do it hands-free, or I could text them. And I always text them because that's yeah. more pleasant. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I have my phone open to Signal right now. I can swipe up, go to Uber in less than a second. Saying the words... Move from Signal to the Uber app takes a whole lot longer than just doing it with my thumb. I also do love the idea of like completely ruining the point of Signal, which is an encrypted, extremely secure messaging app to be like, hey, random box, I want to feed my private messages through you and have you read them out to me as I go about my day. I don't know what your data retention policy is or what you'll be doing with it. They sold out and they made $2 million. So like 10 million of them, some, or uh, 10,000, sorry. It's just, and it's, I've read, I read like 11 articles about this thing because I occasionally drive myself insane with these things when I see everyone excited about something, but I can't read a single article that tells me why I should buy it. Even though my, my rat brain says, oh, tech with screen, I want, but then I want to use it. But I'll have to explain this to the normal people in my life, why I have this. And I don't want to do that if it's useless. But on top of that, I just don't think controlling my life with voice is that useful. Yeah. I don't like that. I, I'm already, and I think a lot of people are already kind of fed up with the extent to which my smartphone is a part of my life. Yeah. But like it does irreplaceable tasks at the moment for me, so I have it. This thing is, number one, adding a device, because I think it does require your phone. But it's also like... You know, in addition to the current problems I have with privacy on my smartphone, I am adding another company and another device and another set of security, potential security flaws to it. But on top of that, the thing they have failed to explain anywhere, and no journalist apparently has interrogated them about this, is they claim this thing can log on to your Uber and make a flight booking, ostensibly having your passport information, your date of birth and all this stuff. First and foremost, that's, like you mentioned, the data retention policy is very strange. But where is this crap all happening? Is it happening on my phone? Is my phone just doing all this? I refuse to believe that. So you're doing this in the kind of virtual machine environment? How is that possible? Surely these companies are going to have a problem with that. Mark Sullivan for Fast Company actually, I think, asked them this. And they were like, oh, yeah, they'll be fine with it. They just want people using their apps. I do not think they're going to be fine with this. Companies hate it when they hand off power from the user who will still be liable to another computer. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is just that, like, part of me kind of suspects, and when you watch the video, we'll play a clip from it in a second, the CEO of Rabbit very clearly, like a lot of guys in tech, wants to be Steve Jobs. And I, I will say one thing I kind of suspect that might actually be, that would be a Steve Jobs move, is he may have just been hoping that this thing coming out, selling a shitload on pre-order and getting huge buzz would force these companies after the fact to allow integration. Like he may just be gambling. Like if I get enough buzz behind me, Uber and whatnot will come to the table and be willing to work with me because suddenly this is like the hippest new gadget. Except 10,000 customers is actually not that many. And I actually look forward to, I really can't wait for like two months to pass people to get this. 
and someone to end up like sending the word penis to their or company Slack because they wanted to order pizza. And on top of that, ordering a flight, ordering an Uber, these are actually really nuanced actions. Coming to Mandalay Bay tonight, Uber took me to the wrong place because it decided it wanted to go to the convention center. I did not select that. If you go to the airport, you need to put in Southwest Airlines or what have you. Uh, with Grubhub, you need to do little bits. It's just most people don't order lunch. They order something for lunch. And I just don't... Ah, this whole thing just feels useless. Yeah. See, for me, it's the additional level of abstraction on top of these already abstracted apps that we use to order our basic like necessities, like eating and things like that. It worries me in sort of like a fantasy dystopic way what happens when people suddenly don't use it after getting used to using it. Like, what are they going to know? Are they going to know how to operate a DoorDash app? Are they going to know how to book a flight? That kind of thing. Yeah, it is kind of... Because one of the things, there was a, a CNET review that said, like, well, the potential of this is that it it completely removes physical use of a device. So you're using these apps, but they're just a part of your life. Uber is just a thing you talk to. You never look at anything when you do it. And I'm like, is that better? Like, I don't, I don't like the idea that you basically have a robot that you treat as, like, your nanny that plans your life for you. Like, the, the amount of hype over... There will be a, a more concerted piece about this coming out. But the first thing I thought when I looked at all these guys talking about how cool it was to be able to just tell a robot to book your flight and plan your travel and book your hotels for you. That's like part of the experience of traveling and like choosing things to do is like one of the things that that traveling is. And the desire so many people have to hand off elements of choice really reminds me of like cult dynamics. And I don't think this is a consumer thing. I think this is specifically a weird subculture of tech people, of AI people, a lot of the same folks who got into NFTs, but this desire to like, life is so complex and scary. I want to hand over all of my agency to a robot. It's the same thing that is, is behind a lot of like why people join cults. And I don't think this is a societal problem, but I think it is a weird problem with the group of people who are most excited to have a fucking rabbit. It seems like a sad thing to me that folks might only attend bars or restaurants that are rated like 4.5 and above that's decided yeah. by something else. Yeah. And they don't get to have this like experience of walking into like the seediest bar you've ever seen in your life and have like maybe possibly like a life-changing experience. I know? was just in South Korea and I we went to this fried chicken place that ended up being close actually it was like we opened but nobody was there which made me just want to leave before getting killed and so i just went to a random chicken place across the road from my hotel and i thought well it'll feed me it was wonderful it was delightful and it was i could not find any reviews for it it was just a flipping place and i don't th i think these people who are desperate for a device like this this kind of weird nanny device First of all, I don't think they think about the practicalities of this. I don't think this is quicker or easier or better. But also they're like, oh, I wish I could just say one thing and all of these things could happen for me. Same people, by the way, who are saying that people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and do things for yeah. themselves. It's just, I don't know if I'd even call it dystopian. It's just weird and sad yeah. to me. Speaking of weird and sad, we're going to move on to the next product in a second. But first, I got to play everybody in case you haven't seen it or heard it. Um, the CEO of Rabbit uh, trying to rickroll the audience with his hell device. Have you seen this, Garrison? Oh, okay. Eyes on the screen, everybody. To activate the eye, just double tap the button. Oh, funny seeing you here, Rick. 
Let me take a look. Never gonna give you up. Playing now, enjoy. What? Am I getting Rick Rogan my own keynote? Let's move on to the next one. All right, I have a question real quick. <laughs> so what is the functionality he just activated? Is it that you just put, you point the eye at something and it chooses yeah, an action? Did the eye automatically see Rick Astley and choose to play one specific song of his? Because that actually doesn't seem like a feature. That seems like a bug. Yeah, that seems like, what happens if it sees certain people yeah jeffrey epstein yeah what happens if it sees does jeffrey it just, yeah plays children screaming like what is <laughs> how is this thing work booking trips to florida <laughs> <laughs> it i i maybe it's respectable that they showed how bad the lag is because that moment where there's quiet after he like clicks on it is like it's loading it's processing for a considerable period of time and it's just also I feel for the bloke because I know he was probably so excited to do this and he was like, I'm going to be Steve Jobs. But man, when you can't perform, you don't perform. Like, yeah, that's bad delivery. That, oh, the, did I just get Rick rolled in my own video? It was like that. I forget what the movie's called. The, yeah. Oh, hi, Mark. Yeah, it, it is. And obviously, like, English yeah, is his first language, but like, it's a performance. You like, you, you practice, right? You get coached and stuff because. You're trying to represent your company. Oh, I tell you this from experience as I've run a PR firm. Yeah, that guy actually did practice because all of that was his actual timing wasn't bad. He just does not have that dog in him. Yeah. Yeah. You bring in other people to do like that. Anyway, everybody, anyone, anyone's mind on the rabbit changed having seen that? Absolutely not. Gar Garrison has a look on their face. No, it's just like. <laughs> What I've always wanted in a tech gadget is be able to point a 365-degree camera at a picture of a musician and then wait 30 seconds and then have an AI pick a random song of theirs. <laughs> that's always what I wanted for the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the dream of uh, fucking Archimedes had. That's when right. He was, when he was building his laser. That's right. That, that we all saw in the most recent Indiana Jones film. Speaking of the most recent Indiana Jones film, this podcast is entirely sponsored by that movie so here's some other ads why are we giving free advertising to disney why are we why because that movie was so close to being worth it. That last 20 if minutes they fully was committed, beautiful. If they fully committed. <laughs> no, Nazis machine gunning Roman legionnaires pretty was funny, amazing. Pretty funny. Yeah. Well, do you know who would have loved CES? Hmm. Archimedes probably. Yes. He probably would have would have had a great time. Um, what, what next uh, yeah, Garrison, life-changing AI product do we want to talk about? Um, how about the pet one, Garrison? You okay. saw that. All right. So I think I think I think me and Ed both saw Chat GPT for animals. Uh, God damn it! Which is not really what it is saying. Um, it's like it it scans a picture of your dog and then tries to tell you if it has any health problems based on that picture. You it it's 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 it, you're not you're not actually talking to your dog or anything. It just it takes pictures of animals. And then it, it it analyzes it to tell you how the dog is feeling, blah 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 blah. It's it it. I saw a product like this earlier at CES. I saw a product. I saw a product like this last year. They're just 
calling it chat gpt because it's an ai name it's 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 it's, it's it's hip like because people yeah. people they're hoping that that will make people spend money on it was every ces i see something that begins to make me disassociate <laughs> and i walk I walked past there, Blovo, the chat GPT for, for and my brain was just like, because just like start like glitching out. And then when I went to look it up, as Garrison did, I was so disappointed because I hoped that these were just crackpots who were like, yep, you put the microphone to your dog, now you know what your dog's saying. That I would respect, even if it didn't work. Just if you were like, yeah, fuck it, yeah, your cat said he hates you. Your, your cat's been radicalized, I'm afraid. See, there's a fun product in here, which is you sell to Rubes, a a product that you're like, it translates your dog's micro expressions into language. And then the actual paying customers are sickos like us. And you just take control of somebody's pet's voice. That'd be so cool. You can have their like, yeah, your cat's racist now. Your dog's a Nazi. (laughs) Like, This is is the perfect product for HP Lovecraft. You would have loved this. No, if you gave me like the show Lie to Me, but for dogs on my phone, I would spend whatever you want a thousand dollars. I will. Yeah, I, w- I my- would pay like average West Coast rent prices yeah. to be able to like gaslight some family into thinking their dog is a terrorist. You see a friend of mine. Oh, what's uh, what's wrong, Ed? Ah, uh, Chat GPT said that I uh, said that my dogs joined ISIS, and <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how he did it, but he's been—he's talking about a caliphate according to the app. I don't know what and this app is bankrupting me. I paid four and a half thousand dollars for this app a month. I don't know why I need it. So, because so, I unfortunately had to miss yesterday. So there was a, probably an endless number of tech innovations that I was unable to to see because I had to miss one day. But uh, with the help of penicillin, I was able to return. Uh, today to do one final the chat walk. GPT of antibiotics. That's th- th- that is exactly what my doctor said actually. But I did I did swear revenge on CES. So I just walked around uh, most mostly mostly the Venetian, just seeing all of the worst things I could find and documenting them, so I could get revenge uh, from that uh, twink poisoning me with strep throat. So the 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 first really good thing is, is this. I, I I mostly walked around the award winning sections because that's where you find only the best. There was an award-winning uh, speaker called Audio CU that all of their marketing was built from this horrible, horrible uh, uh, AI image generation of this like extremely busty blonde woman in a latex suit. But if you zoom in onto her fingernails, her her fingernails are like sticking through the wrong side of her fingers. <laughs> <They're>... <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! It's the woman's from um. What that one movie for? Oh damn it! Not skin. The one, the other. There was the woman where the alien was sexy, and then she killed people when she had sex with them. It's the same thing. Yes. Terrifying. Yes. Readers, uh, call in and say what that is. Yeah, it, it looks just like that. Uh, it says "relax, stick it in," which is pretty funny. Um, so that that was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, I. <laughs> <laughs> no, I respect that. I respect that. Um, that's that's a baller move right there. Again, this is this is for a speaker company. Oh, it's they, like DJ girlfriend in the yeah. shape. Oh, it's, it's a it's a speaker in the shape of a girlfriend. No, it's just home theater speakers. Okay. They just have a horrible AI generated woman as their spokesperson. I mean, I would buy it if it was DJ girlfriend though. DJ girlfriend is a great idea for a product and might stop several mass shootings. AI, AI has brought back sexism. Yeah, if you do DJ DJ girlfriend right, you could stop at least one mass shooting. Finally, we have a real solution. 
Now, an, a, another product that won the CES 2024 Innovation Awards is an AI-powered coffee brewer and grinder system. I, I'm, I'm just going to read the description. That's from what th- coffee's been missing. <laughs> That's right. I, I know we wake up every morning, make our little French press coffee. That's fine. But do you know what could be better? An AI system that does it for you. I'm going to read the award, the, uh, the award uh, description for this product. Okay. Introducing Barista Brew Coffee Brewer and Grinder System, a smart coffee system that tailors your brew to perfection. With AI-guided personalization, easily adjust brewing parameters for a custom cup. No expertise needed. Rate, track, and refine your brews. Brew IQ, AI suggestions for your ideal taste. Simplify with one-touch favorites. Elevate your coffee experience. Yeah, when I hear all that, the one thing I think is simplify... That's that's simple. The movie was Species, by the yeah. way. So I love that movie. One of one of one of the best H.R. Geiger uh, art utilizations. Oh, yeah, yeah, and easily the horniest movie of the nineteen nineties. Like, that, there's which not is, a lot of which com- is like, which is a high high bar. Um, so on 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 this AI coffee maker on the front, there's a little control panel with nine different settings that you can you can. Uh, uh, change because they're all on a graph. We have we have citrus, spice, nutty, fruity, balanced, cocoa, floral, herbal, and honey. So you can you can with your with the, with the ease of a touchpad start to customize your own AI coffee. So that that is revolutionary. I'm going to be getting one for Robert this Christmas. Thank you, Garrison. Yeah, I know. I've always thought you know what I hate is the experience of uh, of exploring new flavors on my own and and learning new ways of of brewing coffee a beverage i consume every day so i'm glad to be handing that whole experience off to a machine that's right and i know a lot of people use <laughs> tavia just brought something up that i think is relevant here it's a guardian article about an ai smoothie shop that opened in san francisco well before ces um that is a combination of uh it's being driven forward with AI technology as well as 5G stuff that I think had opened up and then like three weeks later had shut down. Oh, that's yeah. too bad. They were like, a robot will pick the perfect smoothie for you. Well, I, I actually want to bring works. I want to bring something up. So I love smoking meat. I have pellet smokers at home. And I saw a few times on this show AI grills. And I just looked up one called uh, Brisk It Smart Grill. And I was like, how could you possibly make a thing which is basically maintaining hot air in a tube for yeah. long enough until the food's done? And what it is, is it has a thing you can ask the grill, what seasoning should I add to make my chicken skewers spicy? Or how do I sear a medium rare steak? I don't fucking know. Why don't you learn to cook, you <laughs> twat? <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's just like the, the enjoyable part of cooking is the experimentation and learning taste. But no, thank you. Just like that goddamn coffee thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't want to learn anything. I don't want to have a human experience. That's the thing with a lot of these AI solutions, we'll call them, is I feel like they're robbing people of real experiences. Yeah, for like, no, like there's some stuff that like... You know, the ability of a smartphone to it, once you had to be like in a building in order to like access a phone or like use a payphone, Now you can connect with people everywhere. That's that's a clear benefit. Right. There's downsides to it, obviously, but it's a clear benefit. But like now you don't have to learn now. Now you don't have to cook. You can let a robot do it for you. It's like, well, but why cooking is pleasurable? And if I don't want to cook. I will go to a restaurant or order food, and it's cheaper than buying several thousand dollar AI device. I mean, some things are hard to learn. Uh, 
which brings me to the next product. Not smoking meat, but well, okay. they, well you know, something, something hard to learn. Kind of like like uh, like parenting, right? Oh, so, good. Okay, nice. So, you know what, Garrison? I'm proud of you. That was a good segue. So, AI parenting, especially with your infant child, this was also in the CES awards section, so you know it's going to be legit. I was able to see a demonstration of an AI baby crib that will shake your baby up and down based oh. on <laughs> facial expression <laughs> analysis done by an AI. And yeah, that's I'm, what you do. With I'm going to show show uh, you show Ed here. So no. here is here's the cutting edge facial expressions. We have anger, disgust, fear, happiness, sadness, and surprise. And that basically. All, that data will go into this little crib, which will start shaking and moving up and down based on what they scan on your baby's face. So, to be clear, there is a product oh called God. the Snoo that exists where it. Oh shit, um, drop my phone there. There's a product called the Snoo, which is like a for infants, and it notices when they're fussing and it kind of like lightly rocks them. But the way it rocks them is so very light. It is very much a. This is this is what a mother would do with a brand new baby, freshly baked. You don't want to move them too much. That one has like six pictures from the intro of Lie to Me and a heart rate monitor. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, hand over your baby to AI. Great. Yeah, this product looks like a baby maraca. The pace that you shake it yeah, in which yeah. is dependent on what pretty pace much, you make. Pretty much. Well, I love it also because like a, a real scandal, I think from the, I think it was in the 80s, is like, nannies shaking babies to death like I, the idea that like again a, a machine that can only go at a certain pace that's very light um you know i get that's a labor save especially for like a single parent or whatnot like you know some some people will need that but um i it i i, I just worry I, I i worry that we're not all that far from our first and ai killed my baby well, you know i i think i think that i i think the real beauty of this product is Usually when you have a newborn baby, you have to like watch it all night because it'll wake up. You have to like pick it up, pat it, make sure it gets back to sleep. You can just leave that baby in the bed. You can like, yeah. you can like go to the club. Yeah. Just leave the baby in the bed. If it starts crying, don't worry. The AI will take, the AI are, will take over. We are on the verge of beds that can raise our children, just like the Venture Brothers. That's right. And, <laughs> and those, and those kids turned out fine. Those they turned out great. Perfect specimens, um, really. But I think. Luckily, luckily for you, because I know none of us are babies anymore, but we are all, you know, eventually going to get old. Hopefully, um, yeah, that's a that's a big ho if. Ho hopefully, <laughs> um, and there is AI products that will also assist us as we get older using the same AI baby tech. Here, one of the one of the one of the places that me and Robert stopped by was called Blue Sky AI. It's spelled ri ridiculously offensively and they refused to do an interview they they were not happy <laughs> um, but i was able to get a pamphlet and they have an ai that i think they're mostly targeting it at like older people but quote by comparing the way your facial and vocal behavior changes over time using your facial expressions facial muscle actions as well as where you are looking your body pose and the tone of your voice we have the potential to identify and monitor all kinds of medical conditions that manifest in the face or voice so it's this, it's a facial scanning and voice scanning that uses ai to try to diagnose you with medical conditions specific specifically the guy told us that uh it's it's useful for alzheimer's and he realized we were journalists and then asked us to go away um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it also uh, says but <laughs> yeah that's how you know you've got a good medical device a, a good product at ces <laughs> uh, blue sky uses a continuous approach apparent valiance and arousal to measure 
To measure expressed emotion, this better fits the real human experience of emotional states. This approach allows emotion regions to be defined and to measure the transitions away from and towards these regions. This continuous approach, wh where appropriate, can be mapped back to a much less exact categorical representation, for example, excited, calm, or angry. Do they have horny? They do not have horny. Uh, oh, see, not that I can see. Look, if you know old people, yeah. <laughs> one thing they never stop doing is fucking. Now, they... they they do have a list of all human emotions here that chart it on a map. Finally. That using AI, we can finally figure out what emotions you're feeling based on your face. So you can use this just with your with your phone camera, with your uh, with your iPad camera. They do data collection, data analysis. W one of the weird use cases that we saw was, uh, I, I know we saw, we saw something similar to this already, uh, but just scanning your face when driving to tell you how you're feeling, which is just quite funny. Yeah. It's a, I could talk about that in a second. What this reminds me of, there was a product a few years ago. It was like a robot for the military, and the idea was this robot can run in dangerous situations and pick up troops that have been injured and run them out, which is probably a thing that will exist at some point and might even save lives, right? I can see how that would be a useful thing in the military. It can be very dangerous to retrieve people, much better for a robot to get shot or blown up in that situation than another person. But to try and comfort the soldiers, they gave the robot the head of a teddy bear, like a metal teddy bear head, and it looked like a fucking nightmare. It's just like, what What are you think? Did you talk to, there's all sorts of guys who have been shot in combat. Did you talk to one of them? Did you go, would the experience of having your arm blown off, Corporal, have been more pleasurable if a giant metal teddy bear had so entered? So my first job was working on the characters from Twisted Metal, but then I moved into robotics. <laughs> it's so cool that how many of these products are very clearly made, funded, prototyped, R&D, hired PR teams. Everyone's done these big presentations without talking to a single fucking human being. It's yeah. so cool. Mm -hmm. It's so cool how much waste there is at this show where not a single human soul. There is a, a completely different subject, I realize. There was like an AI-powered... um nail salon thing as well i saw and i'm like that's definitely one where you didn't talk to talk to any woman though because yeah. <laughs> first and foremost in my experience a lot of women are scared of a new nail place for fucking up their hands so are they going to spend 800 goddamn dollars on this thing to maybe get burned. And I saw in this article about it just now that their thing they said was oh yeah it's like an espresso at home I've had Nespresso's break multiple times. And I realize it may sound weird. How can you break an espresso? I'm just built different. But if yeah, I can break it, anyone Just like can. me in strep throat. <laughs> Unbelievable. So I, I, I do have one more product and then I'm... And well, first, I'm Garrison, I know you have one more product, but we also have one more ad break. Ah, oh, we're back. Garrison, what's your next product? So I, we already talked about uh, the handy, which is... You know, like, we sure you know, did. Which is, by, by, by all accounts, actually like works as intended. It's a good product. The people, the PR people, and we talked to the CEO, were not just knowledgeable, but like remarkably good at keeping a straight face while talking yeah. about their jack. With that's professionalism. Yeah. You have to respect it. Honestly, that was the most professional booth I saw the yeah. entirety of CES. They were really on point. Yeah, if you are looking for a jack-off machine, I can't recommend anything more highly. Well, Robert, except for our next product, which is <laughs> an AI-powered jack-off machine. 
Thank God. <laughs> so this is called My Hixel. It is the first. It's the first app. That's an appealing name. It is. That's, that's it is, a name that sounds like sex. It is the first app for climax control to incorporate AI. Now I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna read through there. Really redefines edge technology, huh? Now, I, I want to make a note before you get into it. The thing that they're claiming this is useful for, there are devices for, and it is a real use case, which is that like premature ejaculation is a, is a serious problem for a lot of men. It's like it's like a quality of life issue, right? Like it, it stops people from feeling confident. It's it's a serious problem. There are prosthetic devices people can use to train themselves. That's fine. They already exist. This is basically like, what if an AI could teach you how to come slower? Yes, and we have we have a, a, a six step. Uh, a layout here describing why why my Hixel is right for you. For the first step is secure and anonymized data collection, so you can get oh, good. all of your coming data stored. But don't worry, it's secure. See, my first question to that is why is data on me masturbating being collected at all? Well, it could be because they're putting it towards an eight-week training program. So first and foremost, one of the first things on the website for this is just the words "Happy Sex Year," save sixty dollars on my Hixel control. But "Happy Sex Year" is going to be something I think about for a while. But also, it says it has my Hixel Care and my Hixel Control, two different things, and then my Hixel Academy. And sadly, you can't click on that because I've never wanted to know more about what, how much material could there be? I'm sorry, unless a masturbation academy. <laughs> yeah, I thought they just called that Eaton. That was a British public school joke. It's okay. I made an edging joke earlier and nobody caught it. Yeah, I. There's one thing the Eaton boys do, and they, they don't have sex. <laughs> no <laughs> masturbation. Oh yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I part of what I hate about this is its name is so clearly like trying to be respectful and like respectable and a tech product name, yeah. as opposed to like one of the things that I respect about the Handy people is they just went ahead and called it Handy. I mean, it's weird because like. Some of their some of their free merch were were labeled with stuff like "Download the app to control your loads." <laughs> <laughs> we bring the game. You bring the joystick. <laughs> the first day you went for a run, you couldn't last more than three minutes either. So it's weird how they yeah have this very like sanitized branding except for their like free merch. But yeah, it has it has Bluetooth connection, interactive and personalized settings. You can monitor your user evolution, and it is it is marked as a medical device. But on on their brochure, there's just two two really really good sentences. There's video feedback from our sexual health professionals. So after you come, you can get on a video chat and oh, talk about there it. There we go. There we go. Looking good. It's the uh, pillow talking add-on. <laughs> I'd love to be one of those people. As it going, man? Three minutes? You can do better than that. Come on. Do they, are you meant to encourage them? Yeah. Yeah. Are you meant to commiserate with them? Yeah. What, is, what is the goal here? Yeah. But also, I cannot think of a single person I'd want to talk about that with. <laughs> yeah. I'm just imagining, like, the guy on the other and be like, no, 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 no. Zoom in the camera a little more. I want to see those ropes. Oh, no, that's not bad. That's not bad. Good consistency. Okay. Let's move that over. Let's see his O face again. Wow, can you, you replay that? My friend, that your load management is very consistent. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think I, I think we're really missing is how much how much AI will assist in this because 
they claim that using cutting edge technology, eh, eh, uh, my Hixel control is the first solution to include AI and machine learning for climax control treatment, which is just really, really reassuring. So yeah, it basically looks like a flashlight that connects to your phone and it, it's an app uh, with <laughs> anatomical realistic interior design and AI and secured in an anima- and anonymized data. I think this is really going to open up some avenues for sex workers. Yeah. Hope, hopefully, hopefully, Tafia. It's, um, it's also like the design. The handy is very clearly a robot. You stick your dick inside and it, it jacks you off. This looks like a fleshlight except the back end like the front end that where you unscrew the top and it's like a fake vagina looks like a fleshlight the back end looks like uh, an incense diffuser like <laughs> like someone decided these two products needed to be like what if you could fuck your uh, your aromatherapy bot finally so that that is that is most of the 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 just the groundbreaking ai products that i was able to see today does anyone else have any ai products they would love to talk about it's time to talk about gnerdi okay gnert yeah. Yeah. you want to start us off about gnert okay uh i guess we attended a panel which panel was it y'all i don't that remember that was the dhs ai panel yeah, that was that was the AI panel with one of the heads of the Department of Homeland Security, who I can confirm because he turned around to take a selfie, has a Hank Hill ass. He was very insistent on that. No but. Absolutely no but. And I'm saying this not to shame him, but because there are orthotics for that. You can get help, sir. That's even in a whole episode of King of the Hill. One of the better episodes. Good, good times. So, Gnert AI was announced before this talk that we had, and it was, uh, oh, I think the guy announcing both this this uh, event as well as the panel had taken some time to really focus on the fact that this was his quote-unquote opus. His, his, his opus. His opus. He said the word opus like five times. Gnert's what I'll be remembered by. <laughs> this is my legacy. Yeah, and then um, I guess two of the designers had come up who who stuck out like a sore thumb compared to like the sea of khaki and blazers and things like that. Yeah, yeah, they had clearly never ordered a drone strike, unlike our hero in Homeland That's Security. Right. <laughs> One of them had a wide-brimmed hat that was color-matched to the Gnert yeah. logo, which is pretty cool. What does Gnert stand for? Gnert stands for generate, um, so I think it's actually just called it generate they just took out the vowels um <laughs> but this is going to be a three-day event or a conference held in arlington virginia it's it, it's they are they're claiming that it's gonna have like 200 speakers 150 ai sessions more than 500 startups 150 partners 100 investors and around 5,000 attendees they're trying to target enterprise, governments, platforms, AI tools, AI builders, services, investors, startups, and media. That it, it, it's, it's these three events held simultaneously. One's just called Gnert or Generate AI, which is about just AI, uh, AI tech. Uh, it's about uh, like AI companies, classes, keynotes, funding, blah, 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 blah. There is then Voice and AI, which is about AI language services. And uh, there's also one for Gov AI, which is about public sector and how the government's going to start integrating AI or regulating AI. And they also have one for coding called Code Forward. And uh, it's it's a bummer we can't just play the opening video because the opening video had no like like You've voice got it here, but there's yeah there's no voice. I can read it though. 
97 million new jobs in AI, 500 billion in annual AI spend by 2027, 250 billion in VC funding by 2025. Gnert generate for a new world and a new market. Gnert connects, informs, elevates, and inspires. It all happens at Gnert. And we cannot emphasize enough how they hyped up VC cash. There, there was, there was so much buildup for mm-hmm. VC cash. And- I, I have, I have watched people who are dope sick buy heroin with less jittery excitement in their hands and eyes. All right, so now a bit about shit like this. So I just did a brief cursory look up Gannett. And it's <laughs> and it's it's connected conferences voice I and gov I and code forward, and all of them are claiming the following: they're featuring GitHub, Microsoft, OpenAI, Codium, Tab Nine. Um, their thing on LinkedIn has twenty eight followers, and their engagement is like when I post the word Twitter on Twitter. It's not very good at all. I can get more than that doing any of the pudge picture of my asshole and get more than that. But also, I cannot find a single person claiming to attend this, despite them claiming 200 plus speakers, 150 plus sessions, 500 startups, 150 partners, 100 investors, 5,000 attendees. I can't find a single bit of evidence that anyone is uh, gnerting around at all. And also, they claim to have three different conferences Code Forward, Gov AI, Voice AI, and of course, Gnert AI. And I, and of course, all of these are part of the. Gnert AI beta experience. I don't know why you'd put beta oh, on a these people are beta as hell. <laughs> but also, why have you got beta on a conference? What are you doing? But also, featuring OpenAI, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Google, and Veritwan, I'm going to guess that they've got like a, a chat GPT open on a computer, an NVIDIA pro, uh, GPU and something, Microsoft Word, and they've used Google. And it's very strange because... I don't know what this thing is. Yeah, you know, I, I think what it is is some guys who have a degree of like, na- like, like some guys who are are hoping that they don't have any actual ideas for what to do with AI. So they're hoping that if they create a conference and make that be like the CES of AI, they can kind of force a place for themselves and also attract a bunch, suction up a bunch of money. I also found some. I found some of the speakers. You've got fellow called Adam Goldberg, who's an account director and head of Azure OpenAI enablement on the go-to-market team at OpenAI. They found a sales guy from OpenAI and then said they got someone from OpenAI. They got someone from JP Morgan. She leads data and AI design. These are all fake jobs. These aren't real jobs. And I think that these conferences are amazing as well because all people do at them is they go, they watch these things where people go up on stage and go, you know, generative AI is going to create maybe even trillions of dollars of value at some point. And you know the synergy between generative AI and data collection, but also data silos, is going to be truly, truly innovative. And everyone's like, holy fucking shit. Whoa. Holy shit, piss. And then they all post it on Twitter and they all forget it ever happened immediately. Yeah, we call that the Gnert Dividend. (laughs) We, we, we We do call that the Gnert Dividend. So... Gnert's being put on by this guy who runs this like panel collection called Brands GPT at CES with a Z. No, it's no, not. No, 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 Garrison, not. Garrison with a Z. It should, it should be. <laughs> um, I, I think me and Robert both went to like one or two of these Brands GPT panels. This is the one where uh, Robert got to yell at Google and Microsoft and get them mad. I got to, um, no Google and McDonald's. McDonald's, McDonald's is head of AI. Yes, which is a thing. <laughs> no. So I. Th- 
they they look to basically just focus on like convention programming. So now they're trying to put on their own convention that they're calling Gnert, um, instead of just running this brand's GPT at CES. So th- that's that's the background. It's it's done by Mode V Events. That's Mode and the letter V, but one word. That's like the parent company for this. I'll be interested uh, once we get closer to October. I'll be interested to see if this is looking more like a real event. It's it's not going to be that far for me to travel. Um, but no, they're they're promising uh, five hundred billion dollars in annual AI spending with two hundred fifty billion new VC cash investments, uh, which is which is quite promising. Yeah. So hopefully this beta test goes like the last video game beta test that I went to, and everybody clips through the floor and disappears into a void. Well, I think that's going to do it for us in this episode. And I want to leave you all with, um, well, before we've got one more thing. But before we get into that, which which will be fun, I want to talk about something sobering, which is that, as you may get from this, nearly 100% of the AI use cases that we saw presented were either nonsense or incredibly vague. At these different, where you had people from like NVIDIA and Adobe and whatnot, that like they wouldn't say like, we're going to use AI for this specific task. They would say, we're going to use AI to get more nimble, which I think means firing people. You know, outside of that, the only real specific use cases that were not clearly nonsense were stuff like replacing, you know, customer service workers with chatbots, which is bad. And to be fair, some also really good stuff like that telescope that used kind of machine learning in order to like clean up images so that you can get better, better images and whatnot when you're in an area with a lot of light pollution. There was some stuff like that, but usually very vague, the use cases for AI. What was always extremely clear were the harms. And the very first panel we attended, there's a company called Deloitte. They're a huge consulting firm. If you know about McKinsey, because they're currently, somewhat rightfully so, a bit of a bugbear on the left, um, Deloitte is a similar kind of organization, right? I think they're a bit less toxic, but to a marginal degree. They're like a massive consulting firm. Companies bring them in in order to like help them streamline and make processes more efficient and stuff. And one of their people said that according to their internal metrics, they expected half a trillion dollars in fraud this year in one year due just to voice cloning AI. And that was a more specific statement of what AI is going to do to change people's lives than absolutely any positive use case I heard presented at this conference. Could you like explain what, what, what you mean by voice cloning so AI, we, you know, we did a couple of Bastards episodes talking about scams and like the how they've contributed to the decline of trust in our society. One of the things that has in the last year or so become a massive problem is there are now AI things that can generate a per- human voice near perfectly to the point where, especially if it is a voice of, say, your kid calls you and they're telling you that they have been fucking kidnapped or, you know, something else has happened and they need you to wire them money desperately and you send them the money, it's a fucking scam, right? That is, we we had a person from Deloitte and I think it was a person from Adobe say that they had been called by a colleague um, who had gotten like a call thinking it was, that seemed to be them asking them to buy a bunch of Apple gift cards. Like shit like this is extreme and it's only going to get more common. You can automate too the writing of the scams and the sending of the scams using these AI tools. And that is absolutely, in my opinion, much more of a direct way in which AI is going to affect people than any single product or even cumulatively all of the AI products we saw at CES. On that uplifting note, 
Yeah, let's, yeah. So let's, that's a bummer. And we'll, we will be going into more depth about that. But I wanted to end. Tavia took notes at all of the buzzwords, particularly the AI buzzwords that we heard during the convention. And uh, she's going to read that to us now. You got to tell you, this list is incredible. I've worked in and out of corporate America and much like a cult, they have their own internal uh, vocabulary that they use. And this um, convention we went to was just filthy with these buzzwords. So I'm just going to dig in. Uh, The ones that I've written down are double down. Love that one. That one comes up a lot. Versioning. Versioning. Versioning, which is like a legitimate term in software, but I was hearing it used in places where it didn't make much sense to do it. Um, then our favorite liars dividend by by far by far the best term that we've heard at the at the conference. Yeah. It's so flexible. Yeah, I'm using versions of that in everything. You know, it makes me think a lot about the murderer's dividend, which is when you know I longer have to deal with an annoying person. Uh, we got content credential, which is coming up a lot, especially around the topic of AI. We have data rich and its sister term problem rich, core values, which I heard in every single panel that we were in. Yeah, usually the context of this was we don't need regulations around how AI can be made and put together. The core values of the companies is what will make sure that AI isn't used in a harmful way. Great. <laughs> that's that's going to happen. No, very trustworthy. Very trustworthy groups. Uh, we got risk model. <laughs> and then my next term is the favorite one. It's so good. I'm, I think I'm going to give this one to you, Robert. Yeah, because I don't think we talked about this Guardian MM or something like that. What was the name? MM Guardian. MM Guardian, which is an app you put on. It's not. It used to be an app. Now it is a phone you buy for your child. It's a, a modified Samsung Galaxy something or other. That but it's not a Galaxy Note Seven. <laughs> it gives your it gives you as the parent complete access to your kid's phone and everything they're doing and it automatically monitors monitors all of their not just their conversations but their browsing history and sends you alerts um so like if someone sends your kid a, a text that says you should kys you know kill yourself this is the example he showed us you get a message that like there's this suicidal discussion or whatnot going on um we ask them you know Hey, Garrison particularly was like, what if uh, this is a situation where a parent is abusive um, and like using this in order to uh, keep tabs on their kids or like hates, you know, is like a a child is gay or trans and their parents um, are not accepting of that. Like, does this still can parents still like spy on them over that stuff? Are there any limitations? Are there any sort of safeguards built in in case a parent is being abusive, right? To like monitor or send to the authorities if a parent is using this in an abusive way. And their answer was, no, we're purely about giving parents more power. And the, yeah, the term that they used was tech contracts with children. I can't think of anything more dismal. <laughs> Yeah, that is one of the most dystopian assemblies of words I've ever heard. You should, you should, you should never say the phrase "contracts with children." That's just, that's just like, if you find yourself ever, ever hearing the phrase "contracts with children" spoken by anyone, run away from that person as fast as you can. Maybe, maybe, maybe punch them in the face first, yeah, and then run away as fast yeah. as you can. So, um, that's a good one. That's that's some shit you just keep in Florida, I guess. Now, <laughs> or Indiana, is it? It's a super Florida app. Yeah, that is, that is the center of this business. Moving on, we've got other terms called like visionary and thought leaders, which comes up a lot in these types oh, of uh, God. conferences. I mean, the PR shit. People love saying thought leader. Oh, they love it. Thing doer. They eat it up. 
Uh, we also have edge computing. <laughs> I know. Digital. Yeah, again, handy, great company. Incredible company. Very, very excellent product. Uh, we have Digital Twin, Horizon Scan. So Digital Twin's really good because <clears throat> it means like eight different things. It can mean literally a copy of something, or it can mean a digital version of something. It can mean like a metaverse thing. And these are all different industries using it, and no one can agree on the meaning. Yeah, that's just tradition. That's it just rocks. like what they do. Uh, they have Horizon Scan. I, I actually kind of like that one. That was the first time I'd heard that one. When they're just like looking into the future. I think they're calling that horizon scan. Uh, use case, which came up a lot because everyone was groping for use cases for their technology and didn't seem to have any that they could uh, bring up. Mm -hmm. the, the, ne the next one I heard way more than I wanted to hear, which was accelerate. Which yes. is always, always a yes. great term to hear in tech. Uh, there, th there was there was so much accelerate and accelerating relating to their tech development and their tech use cases. Uh, for another another one of those terms that Javier just read off. Now, this next term is a real thing and an important thing, and not a thing that anyone in the tech industry wants or cares about. The right to be forgotten. Uh, this has actually been legislated. The reason they have to care about this to some extent is it's been legislated in, in the EU, right? And it should be everywhere. I actually think this is an incredibly important concept. Um, and it's basically the, you know, you have we have people go viral, get, become a main character on whatever app for being a piece of shit sometimes or sometimes doing something stupid or sometimes doing something innocuous that for no reason at all makes a huge number he's of people a, He's angry. actually a really good example. There was a kid who posted a video of himself and it was like 4.0 GPA had a job, raised money, didn't get into Harvard or something. He didn't mean it in this way, but someone took it and then turned it into a why kids are being kept out of Harvard thing. And he DM them was like, you're ruining my fucking life. Yeah. This is how this, like the right to be forgotten should be everywhere. Yeah. It is not. It is a hugely important thing. And, you know, I, I actually give the EU a lot of credit for the fact that that has to some extent been legislated. All of that needs to be more common in other countries and more, uh, vigorously enforced. I, I don't. I say that I have no idea how you do it with the internet working the way it does. Some of this I actually do think is a values thing, where we all need to be more okay with the fact that people, even people who can do something shitty online, deserve to not have that necessarily define the rest of their lives. Especially, you know, teenagers. <laughs> and the next one is one that I like to associate with my posts: uh, data poisoning. <laughs> I believe every time I interact with Twitter or Blue Sky, that is what I am doing. I have some data poisoning, I yeah. Da or I am data poisoning mm -hmm. as a verb, or I am data poisoning myself. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got... Uh, oh, Garrison, you want to do this one? Sure. Th these, these are the last three that I got from an AI ethics panel. Uh, we have data silos, how data is all separated. Uh, we have data harmonization, kind of the opposite of data silos. Yeah, that's and basically using AI to generate pictures of Dan Harmon, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> then we have the the last term, which I will I will describe for you: the speed capacity gap. <laughs> so. <laughs> the speed capacity gap. No, no, I, I can answer that for you. So sometimes when I'm doing a shitload of amphetamines that I purchased from some Turkish website via the dark web, you know, I'm doing them with a friend and they OD because there's a, there's a speed capacity gap oh between God. the two of us. <laughs> yeah. 
that's what that uh that's what that dhs guy was talking about yeah. for using yeah. ai to monitor dark web purchases he's gonna really get on that one um no speed capacity gap the gap between tech acceleration and the capacity of society to keep up and make informed decisions about that technology which is actually a kind of a useful yeah, term. A useful. Um, yeah. It's 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 just one of those you know. It sounds like a silly tech term, but when the when it's actually explained, like oh, that's actually a really good way to think about the the, the way AI is being pushed in all of these new ways. And are we actually as a society, whether that's like as a government or just like culturally, able to actually make informed decisions about how we want this tech to be integrated into our lives? And now the dark side of this term, the speed capacity gap, for the to to. To kind of solve this gap, we can either slow down a development, or we can speed up our capacity. And the panelists obviously preferred the latter. <laughs> so we should just speed up our cultural capacity. Did they propose a solution for that? The, the, well, kind of, but it, it's the, it's a little unclear. We can we can go through my recording at, at a later date once once we do our full AI episode. But um, their rationale for why we should instead of instead of slowing down tech development, instead speed up our cultural capacity is because of the many benefits that tech improvements can be made uh, via tech iterations. Right, the the more iterations you get of technology, that the more benefits you're able to get from said technology. Ah, versioning. Yes. Ver version exactly. Sure. Which versioning. brings us all the way yeah. back to versioning. There we go. Yeah. Which brings us all the way back to Turkish amphetamines, because I have been for, for the last twenty years trying different versions of Turkish amphetamines. And uh, the blue pills, man, you know, normally you don't hallucinate on speed, but when you take enough, it turns out you can. And so I think what I'd like to leave everyone with is the knowledge that Turkish amphetamines are a thing you can purchase on the dark web and should. There's no health consequences to it at all. Not a I'm not part of this. <laughs> Bear offline does not support illegal drug purchases. Respect the podcast. They're not illegal if they're so new that the DEA hasn't banned them yet. That's innovation. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's versioning. <laughs> and that is the speed capacity gap, folks. <laughs> the DEA can't keep up with the tech improvements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for us here at Cool Zone. Uh, before we leave, I want to give Tavia and Ed both chances to plug their pluggables. Ed, people are going to be hearing from you every week on your new show, Better Offline, which is launching in a, I, what I, I'm sure you'll agree is a frighteningly short time. Very soon. It is going to be the best weekly tech show. It is going to do the job that no one is strong enough to do, which is ask questions, listen to the answers, then actually make a question that follows them. I'm very much looking forward to this and very excited to work with the Cool Zone team. And Tavia? Oh, um, you can find me on Twitter at CUTMora. And if you want to learn a little bit more ab about my interactive and immersive work, you can see that at TaviaMora.com. Now, you may wonder why I didn't give you any links to anything. And that was a deliberate thing uh, called uh, Subterfuge. But you can find me at where's your ed dot at, your at edzitron on Twitter, X, rate my nudes.biz, and of course, blue sky zitron dot sky dot social. Yeah, and you can find my profile on handy. <laughs> 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 All right, we're fucking done here. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Nick It Happened Here, a podcast about, I mean, I don't know, this is going to help me out like Tuesday, right? Maybe Wednesday. Mm-hmm. You, you yep. probably know what this podcast is about. If you don't, it's about things falling apart and putting it back together again. I, I'm your host, Mia Wong. With me is James. Hi, Mia. And I'm really excited to uh, yeah, yeah to learn some stuff. I'm sure it'll be yeah. great. <laughs> no, nothing. Well, okay. the The good news is that the first guy we're talking about died. That's that's the only good news. <laughs> great, great. I guess magnificent. Slightly more good news. But we're doing some episodes about the Daily Wire. Uh, you're going to get a lot more actual stuff about the Daily Wire in the next two episodes. This is the this is the preliminary background information episode. But, you know, for people who aren't familiar with the Daily Wire, the Daily Wire is a very large and very powerful right-wing media empire. They're, you know, Ben Shapiro's people. Matt Walsh is there. And they are, they've become increasingly powerful because of their ability to drive the actions of sort of like, not even really mid-level, like high, mid-high-level, like Republican officials, particularly at a state level towards you know, horrific anti-trans policies, stuff like that. Yep. They've harnessed incredible divorced dad power 
of of those two guys. It, it, like it's like a uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like a Pokemon situation. <laughs> you know, like they just it's inside. It's like shaken ball, but sometimes they they let it out and uh, and control the Republican Party with it. Yeah, and so okay. You know, but in, in order to really sort of understand who these people are and why they're able to sort of be like this, we need to talk about the ways that this is new. Because, you know, there's always been sort of right-wing, like, Christian media figures who do terrible stuff. But the way the Daily Wire works is different than this stuff has worked in the past. And in order to understand what is different about this than these sort of like previous eras of like Christian anti-queer violence. We need to talk about neoliberalism. Oh, good. So, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is not the normal starting place for talking about the religious right. But if you want to actually understand what's happening right now, you have to go back to the origin and structure of neoliberalism so you can understand how it shaped right-wing Christian organizing in the last about 50 years. I want to start this by talking about a guy who is not normally considered part of the Christian right at all. In fact, he's not even an American, and his greatest influence is on his home country of Germany. The man I'm talk- <laughs> I want to talk about is Wilhelm Ropke. Uh, I've okay. mentioned him on this show before, but that was several years ago. Now, he is not a very well-known figure, and that's not good because he is one of the smartest and one of the most dangerous neoliberals. So in order to, to, to really get a sense of who Ropke is, we need to talk about the beginnings of neoliberalism. So we need to talk about Hayek and his sort of attempt to recruit a bunch of new liberals to oppose, well, mostly to oppose communism. It, it later becomes about also opposing fascism. But the problem that Hayek has is that, so in, in the 19th, this is happening in the 1920s, like really the 1930s. The problem is that the people who Hayek had been trying to recruit from Germany during the 30s all joined the Nazi party. <laughs> so <laughs> in many such cases. Yeah, yeah this is yeah. a real issue for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Once again, the libs have let us down. Shocked. Yeah. So, you know, in, 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 the, in the 1940s after the war, when Hayek is trying to do this again, uh, he turns to William Ropke instead of the original guys who've been Nazis, because Ropke had been out of the country for the whole Nazi thing, so he kind of had skipped out on it. Okay, smart move on his part. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, th- this this gets him an invite to, like, Montpellier, and so the whole sort of the origins of neoliberalism. And Ropke is, a, he's one of the architects of what's called ordo-liberalism. So the ordo-liberals are one of the factions of... You know, they're one of the factions of neoliberalism. What's interesting about them, I mean, we're going to talk a bit about what they believe, but what's interesting about the order liberals is that they're not really economists. I mean, some of them are, but it's a lot of sociologists. And this means that the way that they think about the world is very different than the way that like Hayek or, you know, like a like von Mises or like all the, the you know, the, the sort of like mainline, like guys who are economists in, in the neoliberal yeah. movement think. The order liberals believe that there is a, a natural capitalist hierarchy in a society that produces stability, but they also understand that capitalism in general and neoliberalism, like specifically the thing they're trying to bring about, atomizes people. You know, it, it, it destroys social bonds, it tears the fabric of communities apart, and it destroys the notion of any collective self-identification, replacing them with sort of market exchange and empty consumer symbols masquerading as identity. 
you know, think, for example, the rise of stand culture or, I mean, God, like the thing we do, which is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like going to say streamers, yeah. you yeah. know, so All that's, your friends are on your phone. Yeah. So this is extremely bad. And Ropke realizes this is a real issue for the success of neoliberalism because people don't actually like being completely autonomized market agents with no real social relations other than wages and contracts. And, you know, if presented with these options, they might, for example, turn to communism or God forbid anarchism. Yeah. But Ropke, you know, Ropke is on the side of bad and the side of bad, yeah. <laughs> I think yes. a great title we're, for the episode, Neoliberalism, colon, the side of yeah. bad. <laughs> it's Mia's biography. Sorted. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, Ropke's conclusion from this is that you can't just rely on the market passively coming into existence because if, mar- if markets were supposed to passively come into existence... Or if they were, you know, like the sort of like spontaneous order thing that Hayek talks about when he's lying. Like if that was actually true, they would just have, there would be, everything would be market economies already. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so Roki. natural order of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, like we would have had the exact same economic and political system for the last 30,000 years, but we haven't. So in order to do this, you have to make people into good neoliberal market subjects. And this requires the intervention of the state. The product of this is that Ropke is one of the architects of what's called structural policy. And these are these are specific state policy things that are used to create markets by, you know, sometimes it's it's they, they, there's a whole variety of sort of ways that this happens. But it, it, by by acting on and transforming like physically people, right? Like what they do, what they believe, how they how they congregate, like what things they're allowed, not allowed to do, what things are incentivized. This this is structural policy. This is the origin of what's later going to be called structural reform, which is the kind of stuff that the IMF does to an economy to create markets by taking food from the mouths of babies and making the babies work to get the food. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's the only way. Yeah, and, and, and that part of neoliberalism, broadly, a lot of that comes from order liberalism, and it comes from people like Ropke. But Ropke realizes that you know, there, there's there's a problem with structural policy as an abstract concept, right? Which is that in order for it to work, you need to a take control of the state because again, this is a state, this is a top down state reform project, right? And b there has to be something beyond the state to create the kind of subjectivity you need to instill, you know, to instill in people to make them behave, quote unquote, as market agents, right? You can't just use the state and the market to make people behave in the way that they're supposed to, you know, to be good sort of like workers for the, the, the workers for the great market. You need something else. And specifically, neoliberalism needs its own form of collectivity. It needs its own thing that creates social bonds between people. It needs its own kind of sort of identification to combat the sort of collective society of the left. Now, part of Ropke's plan, and this is something he shares with the other order liberals, is that they want to do this. With you know, they they want to use the patriarchal family and small businesses as like the sort of social basis of of all of their sort of right wing politics. This is very normal right wing politics stuff. They also have weirdly, this is one of the things. It's in the fifties and sixties. There's a lot of sort of on every side of the political aisle, like kind of romantic utopianism ish about like the countryside. 
you know, this can swing wildly between like Mao or like the Japanese fascists or the neoliberals. They they have this dream of sort of turning rural areas into these like bastions of like reaction against the left. And that did kind of happen in the US, but it didn't happen like it 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 happened because the rural economy was completely annihilated and replaced with like a series of meth labs. Not because of like, <laughs> yes. which yeah. I guess technically was a downstream result. It's just that it didn't, it wasn't the sort of idyllic, like good, like farmer family things that these people wanted. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, uh, they got there in an interesting way. Yeah. With like massive agribusiness and meth labs are your two choices in life. Yeah. And like, and you know, so like, uh, like, yes, they, 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 this is one of these things where instead of achieving their goals through cultural means, they achieve their goals through like, the massive uh like unbelievable economic violence but you know okay so that that's the other thing that that that, and that stuff's all sort of standard neoliberal theory right but what makes rope key kind of unique is that he's really one of the first of these people to realize that you need another force and that force is the church and this is something that people don't talk about a lot when they talk about neoliberalism, but a lot of these people are very, very deeply Christian. Um, here's Ropke talking about his ideal society, quote, rendering to the king what is owed to the king, but also giving to God what belongs to God. So, <laughs> What belongs to God? <laughs> like now, I'm, <laughs> now I'm concerned. <laughs> oh, I mean, he's, it's funny because like he's taken the Bible verse like, he's taking the, the render unto Caesar, like, what belongs to Caesar, render under blah, 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 blah. But, like, it's, he's made it enormously more alarming? Yeah, yeah, deeply. Like, because, like, like, the thing about the render under Caesar is that that's a statement about, about, like, living under the Roman Empire, right? Right. Like, this is just, he just wants you to fucking have a king. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to give shit to. <laughs> <laughs> and Everyone needs also a, king. a god who is also yeah. your king, <laughs> right? It, it's not even like uh, like the necessity of the state thing. Like you, you just no. dump dumped in a, like a pointless hereditary inbred person to give money to. Yeah, I mean, he's not like I. I so okay, I, 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 sh- I should I should probably not slander him as thoroughly as I'm doing here because I, I don't actually quite think he literally becomes a monarchist, but he does believe that there should be like. I, I don't know how you describe it. Like, there should be democratic parties, but that like actual economic policy shouldn't be like managed <laughs> by them. Like, right, like a- you need like a supra thing above the democracy, which is the IMF, to make sure that those the the little the little democratic people don't like start getting any ideas about the economy. <laughs> you like a yeah, like a technocracy, like a like yeah, yeah, but, but you know, but state. But like the thing with the technocracy, and and this is this is genuinely kind of what has been happening in Europe is that like living under a technocracy really sucks. Yes, like yeah. it sucks like politically, it sucks materially, and it sucks like emotionally. And you know the right has been able to make a lot out of sort of like this opposition to like the global bureaucracies or whatever, which is like okay, like you guys made these things in the first place. Like I, I, you don't you don't get a fucking complaint yeah. about the bureaucracies that you set up and ran, but. You know, that hasn't stopped him. Yeah, but but Ropke, Ropke, you know, so, so a lot of the other order liberals become really sort of like 
you know, are become obsessed with taking over the IMF, which they do, and they take over the World Bank, and they become, you know, they do that stuff. Ropeki is obsessed with using the with using religion as like another kind of social force that he can bind the neoliberal sort of movement together with, and so he sets out to form like like a react a kind of like reactionary Catholic international to bring neoliberalism to the world. <laughs> That is a troubling concept. Yeah, so it doesn't work, which is the good news. Well, and the, the problem is, it doesn't work. It, it's not that it doesn't work because it's a bad idea. The reason that it doesn't work is that he's trying this in like the fifties and sixties, and it is too early for that shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you know, I mean, and this is something I like. I feel like I should at some point I should actually do a deep dive into this on the show, but. I've talked about this a couple of times. There is a very powerful form of kind of like conservative Christian politics in Europe at this time. Uh, It's like the Christian democracy movements. There's like every single country, if you look at it, like from like the 50s through like the 90s. I mean, even to this day in Germany, for example, like there is a party called the Christian Democrats. Yeah. And they win like at least 60% of all elections. Like in Italy, they're in power for like 40 years. But the problem with Christian democracy from the perspective of someone like Roki is that like if you sort of if you take like these parties, right? These parties are, you know, these are these are the, the Christian conservatives of this era. They are way, way too far left for uh for Ropeki. And that's not just the sort of like rope look at how far right Ropeki is, although he is. Um so, like, if if you took Aldo Moro, who's like the great Italian Christian Democratic statesman, multiple time Prime Minister of Italy, uh, killed in an insane web of conspiracies, but like, if you <laughs> so took, again. yeah, it, it, look, I, I'm not gonna talk about him, but like, if you took Aldo Moro and you dropped him into the modern American Congress, he would be to the le- he is again the leader. He's like the leader of Italian. Well, I mean, he's, not, he's technically from the central left faction of the Christian Democrats, but he's like the guy who's not a socialist or a communist, like in terms of Italian politicians, who's not also a fascist. And if you took him from like the seventies and you plopped him into the American Congress, he would be to the left of AOC. Like <laughs> AOC is pro ceasefire in Gaza, right? Like she's, she's pro ceasefire in, in, in yeah. Palestine. Aldo Moro allowed the, the popular front for the liberation of Palestine, which is the, the Palestinian uh, communist paramilitary to yeah. operate out of and carry out attacks like from <laughs> Italy, right? Like this yeah. guy, you would like, he is, well, if, if, if you, you go far him, enough, right, you might get that as well, to be fair. No, like, but, but the, it wouldn't be the PFLP though. I, yeah, know, I, I guess, I guess some of the German neo-Nazis kind of liked them, but right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like ima- imagine in the U S any politician, being like, yeah, the PFLP could operate out of the U.S. Our only, our only, our only condition is that we like we're gonna let you operate, but we're not gonna like protect you from uh, like Shimbed or whatever. Right. Like, here, no, yeah, we're yeah. not Shimbed, the Mossad. Yeah, like we're not gonna protect you from the Mossad. Like, but you know, you can you can do your stuff here. Can you imagine <laughs> <laughs> that shit happening? This guy was a this guy is a conservative in Europe, right? In the seventies, <laughs> yeah. like you know. So this is what Ropeki's responding to, like. The, the 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 existing Christian, you know, and, and and you know, to some extent, like the Christian, the Christian Democrats are very, very successful at stopping communism, right? They're really good at it. They stop communism from taking hold anywhere in Europe, but they're not like capitalist enough for Ropeki. So, when we come back from this thing Ropeki would have loved, which is ad transitions, we're going to talk about, <laughs> uh 
more of what Roepke was doing and how it shaped neoliberalism and the Christian right. Woo, yay, we're back. Uh, Roki is having a great time in his grave. We're going to get to the thing that makes him spin in his grave, which I'm very excited about. Excellent. But, okay, so, you know, uh, like, as, as we've sort of been talking about, the Christian Democrats are not the Christian. The Christian Democrats in a lot of countries are Catholic. Um, Some of them, mm-hmm. like, I think, like, there are Protestant, like, Christian yeah, Democrats. Yeah, the German. But, like... Yeah, but like a lot of a lot of them are Catholic. So I mean, it's 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 a really interesting kind of like predecessor to like modern far right politics, where you get these like both in the U.S. and in Latin America, where you get these sort of like these Catholic Protestant alliances. Like for this is this is like Matt Walsh, you know, we're gonna be talking about more in the next two days. Like is a Catholic theocrat, right? But a lot of his base are like you know are like Baptists and like the more even more feral charismatic Christians and like. You know, but but yeah. you know, but these these groups are able to sort of work together, but they're not able they're not working together in the way that Ropeke wants. So, and and this is the thing that I think is is very very scary about Ropeke, and and especially about the people who took this model, right? Whether explicitly or implicitly, people who people who figure out the same because a lot of people, some people like kind of directly discover from Ropeke, some people discover it through like. I very weird readings, right wing readings of Gramsci. Uh, it's a whole thing. What? I'll talk. Yeah, one day I'm gonna get Eve on the show, and we're gonna talk about that because it's fucking wild. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what the? Fl- yeah, wow. I feel like Gramsci is not the most like inaccessible. You know, like it. it you know, there there are some like left theorists who just just vomit words so much that you can just project meaning onto them, but. I have not. Well, heard I mean, they're, they're, they're thing. They're thing. This is this is uh, Eve Edinger's like thesis is that they, these people saw that like leftists were reading Gramsci, read Gramsci, and were like, "We're going to do the right wing version of this." Uh, okay, yeah. So now I see. Yeah, it. but yeah. but you know, so, so some of these people are, are rediscovering the same things that Ropeke's figured out in like the fifties. But ro- the thing that Ropeke is doing is he he's figured out all the essential elements of the modern Christian right. You promote neoliberalism with one hand. And then you sell the solution to the atomization that your neoliberalism causes on the other hand with the church. And this, yeah. the church, yes, will, will serve as the basis of your political organization. Yeah, that is, that is, a, uh, is a way of doing it. Yeah, and I mean, this, it's an interesting, there's a lot of people who do this same thing. Like, at some point, I'm going to finish my, I'm going to write the thing about, like, this is actually what libertarianism is. To a broad extent, is that libertarians are the people who like take the problems that the market produces and then try to sell you a solution which is more of those same problems but worded <laughs> differently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and, uh, with people allowed to smoke weed now, so it's fine. Yeah, but but you know, so, but this is this is the Christian version of it. Um, but again, Ropeke to a large extent is smarter than the people who come after him because he understands that. This project, this, this this sort of Christian deliberate project, is a constant struggle against atomization that and, and this atomization has to be actively politically combated by the church, like both politically and socially. And if it's not like actively combated by the church, this whole project is gonna start to come apart. 
Now, Ropeki is not the man who's going to lead the mob of Christian fanatics into the promised land. And part of this is also because he is like too racist for like the 60s. Which, again, it's quite racist. Like, so, like, in the parts of the 60s when he's saying the really racist stuff, like, segregation is legal in the U.S., right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like that, this is, this is, this is where we're at with this stuff. And he's too racist for that. Um, and the thing that he's really, really racist about is Rhodesia. Now, oh, fucking hell. I yeah, didn't so expect like, a Rhodesia appearance. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is the Rhodesia yeah. pivot, which is that, like, okay, so the, the Orthodox neoliberals, people like Hayek, are pro Rhodesia. Right, and this is a uh, uh, Milton Friedman. These people are pro Rhodesia, but they're smart enough to use dog whistles and talk about it in terms of like economic terms and like stability of government. Blah 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 blah. Ropeki is just openly saying race war shit. Like I'm not going to read it, <laughs> but he is effectively like the spiritual forefather of like the four chain mass shooter. Like that. That's how racist he is. Damn. And you know, it turns out that just again, openly like open race war shit is like too much for Hayek and he gets kicked out of the mainstream neoliberal organizations. And tragically, tragically for all of us, Rovki dies before he can see his beloved uh, Rhodesia reduced to a pulp by uh, a series of anti-imperialist insurgencies. He he dies before the he dies before <laughs> yeah. all of the Rhodesian or yeah. like society's fucking fuel supplies stored in one spot are blown <laughs> yeah, up. I was going to say, <laughs> see if they'd had a more distributed market economy, Mia, they, they would have had uh, just, just their, all their fuel in one giant bottle, which uh, they, they burned. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't been following the history of Rhodesia, not a country anymore. Yeah, thank Christ. Uh, yeah. Actually, don't thank Christ. Fuck Christ. Christ didn't do shit. Yeah, thank all those people who thank, went thank, out there and the killed bigots. Etc. Etc. Uh, yeah, and of course, okay, all the American people who went over to join the Rhodesian military and killed uh, other white Rhodesians by accident by shooting at people who were theoretically on their side. Yeah, shout out to them. We're, we're not going to get into North Korea backing another genocide in in Zimbabwe here. That's also a fucking thing. Uh, I'm not doing apologies for that because that shit fucking sucked. Yeah, but uh, you know, okay, but he 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 dies before he can see his beloved Rhodesia fucking eat shit and die but what Ropeki had is a very clear version of the neo the hierarchical neoliberal society that he wanted to create right and he is very especially by the end of his life he is very explicit about what this is it is a christian white supremacist patriarchal world and to build it the right is going to have to use the church to stave off the alienization and atomization of capitalism And we're back now in order to build this new world the world that Ropeki sort of imagines the religious right the actual religious right that's going to bring this stuff into fruition sets off from a number of angles um i think the most famous part of this is probably the sort of moral majority infrastructure which is this network of like think tanks political adv- advocacy organizations tv networks mailing lists like their own insane right-wing colleges um oh, yeah god terrifying places but the fundamental social basis, right, the fundamental collective space around which the right is organized was the church. There's been a lot of sociological talk in the last few years about, like, quote-unquote, third spaces. So a third space is supposed to be this place that's, like, not the home or not the workplace that people can exist in and form bonds in. And, you know, people talk about, like, bridge clubs, blah, 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 blah. But the thing about the U.S., 
is that like the fucking YMCA, like all of these things that people talk about as the third space are just the church in different forms. Yeah, 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 yeah. Literally church or a bunch of church run events. Yeah. Wow. Especially like the more like rural you get, like it is. Yeah. It. And, and this is, and this is one of these things like th- this was actually like one of the sort of rear flanks of the workers movement, right? Which is that like, in large parts of Appalachia, right, you have a bunch of really, really militant, like, miners' unions, for example. But then, you know, but all of them are also, like, are also are also Baptists. And that is fine as long as, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with Baptists who are doing, well, I mean, I say fine, but, like, it, it's not an existential threat to the workers' movement when you're dealing with, like, like, you know, like, uh, it's easier for an arrow to, like, sorry, it's easier for a camel to walk through the head of a pin than it is for a rich man to go to heaven, Baptists. But the moment that stuff starts flipping, that's a very, very dangerous sort of rear guard. You see this in Asian American communities where, like, you know, Asian Americans generally, like, the last two generations, like, millennials and Gen Z are tacking really, really hard left, except the fucking Christians who are, like, <laughs> forming this this insane rear guard because I've complained about this before. I'm fucking, I'm doing, I'm, this, 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 this is a Christianity episode. I could fucking talk about this. Uh, the, the, thing, the thing about Asian Christians is that they're all, they're almost all, like, first-gen converts. So they all have convert brain. Which means oh, they're all yeah, completely fucking batshit. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, and the, this is one of the things that we're talking about here, right? Is that the, physically the church serves as this very, very important engine of, of counter-revolution. It serves as this engine of sort of spreading reactionary politics, even among groups of people who you normally wouldn't get that kind of sort of right-wing politics from. And this is where, you know, faced, faced with the sort of leftward shifts in the U.S. in the 60s, 70s, and globally, too, faced with, you know... I mean, literally the specter of revolutions and not even like sometimes not even specters like, you know, this is post 68, right? There's been a bunch of actual uprisings. Yeah. And the, the place that they make their move is by trying to seize control of various pieces of church infrastructure. Um, we're going to take a Catholic example and a Protestant example, and we're not going to do the obvious Orthodox example because we'd be here for a fucking century. So let's start with Ropke's beloved Catholic church. Um, I think... I don't know. If I'm going to do a little bit of left inside baseball, I think people on the left tend to be really obsessed with the the like liberation theology people. But the problem with liberation theology people is that they were around for maybe like 30 years, right? But by the time you get to the end of the 80s, these people are all dead, right? Like they're either dead or they're like Ortega and they've become these like literally they start calling themselves the third way and are like yeah. cutting all these deals with like really right wing social groups. The, but so and so this means that the, the the dominant politics of like the the capital like T capital C the Catholic Church is very gets very very right wing. Well, it's not even that it, so much that it gets right wing, but it is very right wing, and, and the stuff that they're doing is very very scary. One of the things that I don't think people really realize is that, so that you, you've probably, you, you've heard the term gender ideology. Yeah. You <laughs> yes, know, I have, man. Yeah. Do you know where <laughs> yeah. that's from? Is it from, I've fucking forgotten the place where Harry Potter goes. Uh, 
Oh, Hogwarts? Uh, Hogwarts, yeah. Hog- no. Hogwarts J- Castle. J- JFK is a fucking Johnny Come Late bastard. Like, yeah. she 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 got yeah. into this game after that shit had already started. <laughs> yeah. Gender ideology is a term JFK developed... JFK Rowling. JFK Rowling is a powerful, <laughs> powerful fucking... <laughs> no, no, speaking of Catholics, uh, though. Like, yeah. no, yeah. this... The term gender ideology comes from the Catholic Church. And it's developed in reaction specifically to feminism and very specifically for, it's, it's, it's developed in reaction to argue to arguments from feminists that that you know that gender is socially constructed you know because in the catholic church's position is like well no that's heretical because obviously gender was assigned by god and because gender is assigned right. by god like women are like you know women are like like yeah, yeah, submissive blah, blah 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 yeah like natural yeah, yeah. This, this, this is this is this is the natural order this isn't like a sociologically constructed thing this is the natural order this yeah, is how yeah. it's always been it's how it's always billy be because they're like un like unfathomably sexist is this like around the like elaine pagels beef with the church i'm not sure if elaine pagels if you with elaine pagels god the father god the mother i think this is a bit before my time uh okay yeah yeah this is uh for world history stands at the university of california a common topic well i i think i think this is actually in the same i've played videos of her to my students and it's definitely in the 80s <laughs> like the, the the vibe is powerfully 80s that uh, yeah so i guess that's a bit late because so a lot of the gender ideas all this stuff comes out of the early night well i guess it's like early 90s okay so one of the things that happens is that a lot of you know, in the 90s, the Catholic Church, and they have a bunch of, like, rad femme allies here, by the way, do have this massive fight in the UN about, like, recognizing the right to abortions and other, like, sexual reproductive rights. And the rad femmes are pissed off because, uh, I mean, there's a whole, so they're, they've been, they're aligned with the Catholic Church. It's like an anti-sex work thing and, like, an anti-porn thing. And then also, like, a lot of the rad femmes, well, I get, in, I got in so much trouble for saying this, but like, holy shit, there's so many of those people are insanely transphobic. Yeah, damn, wow. Yeah. But you know, but like th- this, well, this is this, there's this massive battle inside of the United Nations between f- a bunch of feminists and, or like feminists who are like normal, and then like the the, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the shitty rad fem factions yeah. and the Catholic Church on the other side. And Pope Benedict in particular goes like all out on this stuff, both on the international level and in terms of like local churches, like goes on the offensive against abortion and queer liberation. And meanwhile, the Protestant church is doing like exactly the same thing. They are like, except like, I think, I think like even more fascist, (laughs) which is really, really. and And I say this as someone who was raised Lutheran, like that, that is really the core of Protestantism is like, what if we did Catholicism, but like somehow shittier like like Martin Luther, one day I'm going to do my thing on the world's greatest kind of revolutionaries, and then one of them is Martin Luther because oh yeah, very quickly because like like I, I my my argument for this is that the greatest kind of revolutionary is the person who starts out at on on the side of the revolution and then turns against it. And so Martin Luther's thing was he was trying to outflank the Catholic Church in the 1600s from the right on anti-Semitism. Sorry, I meant uh, 16th, 16th century, uh, 1500, 1500s. Which is even worse, 1500s Catholic Church, they have expelled, they have like, ex- just, they have, they are, this, is, this is in the period where they're like expelling all of the Jews from Spain, right? And Martin Luther's <laughs> trying to like flank them. And th- this is the kind of shit that's happening like in the US at this point, which is, you know, th- this, is, this, is, this, is the, this is the Protestant sort of following the Catholic, like, well, I, 
and in some ways blazing their own trail of 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 going really hard right. So probably the most famous, and I think definitely one of the most important examples of this is the right-wing seizure of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1979. So for people who don't know about the Southern Baptist Convention, they are a very, very large and influential like group of Baptist churches. And they've been kind of like, they'd been anti-segregation. They'd been sort of like oh, wow. trending left. And there's, and this is one of the things, this is a very, very famous thing in, in the history. Like if, if you, you know, in, in sort of like the, the, the history and mythos of the right wing is like in 1979 at, at this convention, these like, there's like these group of pastors who are like, ah, the church is getting too woke or getting too left wing. <laughs> yeah. And so they, they scrawled out this plan, like on a fucking napkin to like how they were going to take over the church. And they do it. They, they, they seize, they seize control of the Southern Baptist convention and they purge all of their enemies. And it is, very, very quickly, within a matter of like a couple of years, is converted into this factory for right wing violence. Yeah, you know, they they are they ruthlessly purging dissent in the churches. A bunch of churches leave because they're like, what? The, who the fuck are these people? Like, just these absolute right wing fanatics. Just like I've taken control. So a bunch of churches leave, but a lot of them stay. And you know what what their what their project is is that they start creating these sort of totalitarian micro states. Like in like this, this is what they turn churches into, and this is what they turn households into, because these households become enormous centers of abuse, like just unfathomable amounts of violence can sort of get get sort of spread out of this stuff. And you know the, the way that these things work, right? Is 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 you, you may have seen? Have you seen those like fucking deranged umbrella memes that the Christian right makes on Twitter? No, I think so. Th- okay, there's supposed to be like these like umbrellas, and there's like each person, each umbrella, or the umbrella like protects you from a thing. So there's like the family, and inside the family, they're like protected by the authority of the husband, who's protected by the authority of the church, protected by the authority of like the theocratic state. <laughs> I, I okay, no, this is like the most cursed Russian doll. It's awful, and yeah. this this is just what these people believe, right? And and they they enforce this through psychological and physical violence. These people are they're sending out instruction manuals about how to beat your children, right? And how to do it in ways that you won't get caught. The, you know, and what, like when when I'm saying that these are like totalitarian microstates, that's not an exaggeration. That is that is what these households are like. They're unbelievably violent. You as a child are under constant surveillance. You are literally forced to through physical violence to maintain their gender norms. And this is the base of the Christian, of the homophobic Christian right. These, these churches are pumping out shock troopers, and these are the shock troopers both of neoliberalism and homophobic and transphobic violence. And when I say shock troopers, I do mean this literally because an enormous number of these people, and this is part of part of the reasons politics starts to fall apart. Like I grew up around these people, a lot of these people went to fucking Iraq and got the absolute shit blown out of them. But you know these these people. Like these these churches, this is you know you you can you can look at the sort of panoply of of the people who do right wing like homophobic violence, right? The queer basher, the parent who kicks their kid out of their homes for being gay, the homophobic boss who fires and abuses queer workers, the doctor who assaults us and then denies us medical care. These people are pumped up by the church, and what the church is doing here is they're serving as the equivalent of sort of un- of unions on the left, right? And when I say unions, I'm talking more like the 1907 IWW than like the 2023 AFL-CIO. These churches are the social and organizational space in which the right constructs its world, right? It's, it's the sort of nexus of homophobic organizing 
from the beginnings of the homophobic right through like their fight against gay marriage. But come on. Something happened that Rope well, I think Ropeke might have suspected this, but something happened that his inheritors did not expect. And that something is I I and the only thing I failed to consider is what if neoliberalism came for the church? So one of the things that has happened in the last and I mean literally we are talking the last 10 years or 10 to 15 years, really the last like 10 years. Church attendance, and this is also actually true, well, of, of synagogue and mosque attendance, although church attendance has been declining way more. It used to be like, if, you know, if, if, if you're, are you a member of a church, mosque, or synagogue, right? Like Gallup has been pulling this since the fucking 40s. It used to be the the, the, the rate of, it, of of being a member of a church, synagogue, or mosque was, it, it was for, for like, basically until like 2000, it was hovering around 70%. Yeah. It's now 47 Man. That is a catastrophic drop. Yeah. That is a rewriting of like fundamentally what the U.S. is. The U.S. has been a like Christian hell state like since it was created, right? Like the U.S. is founded by like religious extremists whose problem is that they weren't allowed to persecute Catholics enough. So th- th- this has been this has been a a church country more so than like most of the European countries who did the settling. Up until literally the last 20 years and the drop between 2010 and now is like 14%. And this is, this is, and, and, and it's not just that the membership rates are going down, like the actual, actual church attendance is going down. And so, and so in, in this context where less people are going to a church, less people belong to a church, the political strategies that have been based on using the church as like your default social network, uh, they don't have the kind of reach that they used to. Yeah. And if, if, if that's your political strategy, this is a catastrophe for you. Now, you know, we can talk, there are like, there are lots of reasons this is happening. Part of which is sort of like the secularization of the U S part of this is that there've been so many fucking atrocious abuse scandals in these churches that people are just fucking leaving because that's what happens. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> and one, one day, one day, the thing I really will get canceled for is when I'm going to, the, the episode I do about the, how this happened in the DSA and how it just hollowed out the membership because, you know, it turns out when people get yeah. abused, they just fucking leave. Yeah. Not just the DSA. Like, unfortunately, yeah, like, this happens it, in so many organizing. Like this is, yeah, like, this is far too often on the left. On the left. Right? Yeah. Stopping yeah. fucking creeps. Yeah. But like, you know, fellow cis dudes. Man, yeah. The, the Christian right has it particularly bad because they don't yeah, they well, they will never address it. Right. <laughs> this is part of yeah. the, their ideology is that this is good. Yeah, that's the problem. Like, at least in the left, like it keeps fucking happening. We do recognize it's bad. We sometimes just seemingly people on the left are prepared to allow it to happen because they think yeah. it's not as bad as the alternative, but which is bullshit. But yeah, when you have a church which actively kind of encourages it. The, yeah, that's bad, and, actually, and 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 part of and the other the other thing that's happening here, right, is that like the other thing that's generating this is just the is just the neoliberal atomization of society. Like it's it's tearing apart sort of like social bound, you know. And, and and I mean, one of the things I think you have to be careful of when you talk about neoliberalism tearing about social bonds is that not all a lot of those bonds sucked. Like <laughs> yeah. it was not good that everyone was seventy percent of Americans were going to church, right? Like not good yeah. at all. That sucked. It was deeply evil. But you know, it, it tears apart like it, it tears it tears apart bonds 
not entirely without regard to ideology, but it, it still does do it. And this means, in, in this context, has completely reshaped what right-wing, like, anti-career and anti-trans organizing looks like. And the right, right now, the right solution to that is the Daily Wire. And we will get explained that in very great length tomorrow and the day after that. So stay tuned. Dun, dun, dun. It's the entry of the bad guy. Well, we already had a bad guy, I guess, but he's dead. These ones. Yeah. This is the bad guy number two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Three, four, maybe after the Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're right up there, though. But I mean, they've yeah. still got time, too. You know, they're, they're yeah. already only in their ascendancy, so we shouldn't judge them too early. Yep. But yeah, this has been It Could Happen Here. Uh, go make these people's lives miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Bench Pair is miserable uh, because I wrote a piece of pop mechanics about how to tear down a statue, and he is still <laughs> mad about it. Because <laughs> he said, I can't wait for their piece about Molotov cocktails. And then I wrote that as well. So Ben Shapiro can suck it. <laughs> uh, thank you for the career help, Ben Shapiro. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. 
Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart. And whenever you have things falling apart, you have the Daily Wire. I don't know, Garrison, what are we, what are we talking about today? Yeah, the, the, the Daily Wire has been our, our trusted companions <laughs> um, among the rise of the alt-right and this kind of just impending sense of bad that has been, you know, increasing the past 5, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you know. So Mia in the last episode talked about some of the neoliberal conditions that kind of led to this dip in church attendance and it's resulted in the Christian right kind of changing formations in a few interesting ways. And we're going to talk about that here, but now more specifically about how the Daily Wire has been able to profit off of this shift. So, as third spaces, including churches, die off, online spaces have begun to fill the gaps. From Facebook groups to content creators to conservative streaming services, the organizational hub of the far right has been picked up by opportunistic bloggers and aspiring movie moguls. Which brings us to 2013, a perfect year. Nothing, nothing went wrong. Just a normal, a normal time. So in 2013, we had failed screenwriter Ben Shapiro and a failed movie producer Jeremy Boring. They started working together on a project called Truth Revolt. Now, I assume most of us are somewhat familiar with Ben Shapiro. Uh, he was an editor at Breitbart. This he started as a young conservative blogger who gained prominence in the 2000s and the 20-teens. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to waste too much time going into the background of Ben because I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing we all, we all basically know who Ben Shapiro is. But I'm also guessing that almost no one listening to this probably knows who Jeremy Boring is, uh, hence the name. So I'm going to be focusing a lot on Jeremy. I, I find Jeremy to be a kind of fascinating person. I, I almost weirdly enjoy watching his stuff just because I find it to be extremely fascinating. His demeanor, his 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 way of going about creating a conservative media empire, I find to be really intriguing. I've 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 watched Jeremy Boring's stuff just as like a voyeuristic observer for years now, and he's actually starting to become more of a more of a prominent face among the right-wing media ecosystem. He, or at least he's he's been putting his face out there for a while. Most of the time he's just been behind the scenes. So Jeremy Boring uh, is just a is a is a is a good Christian boy from a small town in Texas. He got involved Which in kind of small local town. <laughs> yeah, I I I, for, I forget the exact town because I didn't I didn't write it down in the script. But I believe it's somewhere in West Texas, if I remember correctly. It's 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 been a while since I watched the two-hour interview with Jeremy Boring where he discussed his upbringing. God, I wonder if it's Lufkin. I'm pulling it up. I'm pulling it up. Slayton. Okay. Okay. Well, still a dog shit Texas. Okay. Yeah. See, that's why I didn't mention it because it's like who cares? Yeah, it's in Lubbock County. My Lubbock. God. Yeah. He was kind of involved in some local community theater productions as a kid. Um, and like a lot of kids, he aspired to be an actor. So as a young adult, he moved to L.A. 
he very soon uh gave up acting i think he had one small bit role as like a crying soldier but besides that he just couldn't get any work so instead he just he decided to become a struggling screenwriter a classic classic move where mm, you're yeah moving moving from a failed actor really to a failing screen. downwards yes 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 exactly in the early 2000s, he got invited to a Hollywood Bible study group with a whole bunch of, like, young C-list celebrities. And over time, he evolved into a sort of pastoral role within the group. And then in 2007, he was able to write and produce his first movie, Spiral, starring Zachary Levi, who now uh, played Shazam in DC's movies, and really nothing oh. else, because he seems to be a deeply unlikable person who's not really been hired in many other things. Mm -hmm. um but zachary levi was also in this like christian bible study group they were both friends him and jeremy boring so they made this movie spiral it grossed just over three thousand dollars so not the smash wow. hit that you know you would you 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 would hope for for your first movie that is uh yeah that's not great it's not it's it's not it's not perfect um now, Jeremy Boring claims that his religious and political beliefs made it so that he wasn't able to progress very far in the Hollywood system. But he was invited to a secret meeting of conservatives in Hollywood called the Friends of Abe. Now, Robert, you should you should look up the Friends of Abe logo because it's really good. Oh my god! I think people like like uh like John Voight and just, uh, you know, th those sort of like, yeah, old it sounds like a thing John Voight would be a member of. Yes. yes. I'm pretty sure John Voight was a member of this group. God, they're, and they're treating it. They're treating it. There was like a friends of something or other group that was like a, an underground group providing reproductive healthcare service back before abortion, back before Roe v. Wade, which is clearly what they're, Oh God. Is the, who made this logo? This is like bad clip art. Yes. Oh my god. It's it's quite good. So he was he he was invited to this secret meeting, the Friends of Abe, and this is where he met another friend of the pod, Andrew Breitbart. So this is this is actually really a really important Kelsey cultural... Grammer was a member too. So Yes. A very important weird subcultural community within Hollywood. So as Jeremy was trying to move into just movie producing, he was actually asked to take over this Friends of Abe group. So he, he became a very central role, and he made a lot of connections. Connections that will soon become important when we discuss the Daily Wire's own adventures in movie producing in the, in, in the next uh, episode or so. So he took over this group eventually. Uh, he had this other smaller Bible study group. So he's kind of moving up in the world of conservative <laughs> secret meetings in Hollywood. Um, so because he met Andrew Breitbart at the Friends of Abe, Andrew Breitbart obviously knows Ben Shapiro because Shapiro used to be the editor at Breitbart News. Also, I, I feel the need to note, uh, the Friends of Abe was founded by Gary Sinise, uh, who was in such beloved movies as, well, I think the only beloved movie he was in was Forrest Gump, where he played Lieutenant Dan. Oh, he did? Although he... Yeah, he, he's this is Lieutenant Dan founded the uh, the group, which is actually like Lieutenant Dan would be in the Friends of Abe. Uh, true, so true. that 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 kind of fits. Um, he also had apparently a bit role or some role in Apollo 13. I forget who. So there you go. Gary Sinise. Great. So around this time is when Ben Shapiro and Jeremy Boring first met uh, just just before like 2010, I think. 
The two met via Andrew Breitbart, whom Ben was working for at the time at Breitbart News. Now, Jeremy and Ben hit it off, and they decided that they would want to work together to create media to quote-unquote influence culture. That's, that's a term that Boring uses quite a lot, is like influencing culture. Now, Boring was very impressed by Shapiro and sought to propel Shapiro's fame and wanted to create a platform to, cr to, and wanted to create a platform to increase Ben's ability to impact politics on a larger scale. He really thought he saw something in Ben that, if utilized, could make Ben into a pretty major celebrity. Boring was friendly with board members of the David Horowitz Freedom Center, an mm. extremely racist, anti-Muslim right-wing think tank, I believe based in LA. Now, Boring thought that Ben and David had a lot in common. They were both very like politically feisty Jewish conservatives in the LA scene, and Boring wanted to prepare Ben to sort of carry the torch of the Freedom Center, using all of the resources that David Horowitz have built up over a long period of time. So, for about a year and a half, Boring met with board members behind the scenes to create some sort of buy-in and cast Ben Shapiro as the future for the Freedom Center, planting seeds of what it will be to come. Eventually, David Horowitz chose Ben as the heir to the Freedom Center, first by giving Shapiro and Boring an opportunity to test things out by starting a company under the Freedom Center called Truth Revolt. Truth Revolt is something that I didn't I, I think I saw it a little bit when I was like a younger teen but it wasn't it wasn't super popular. Truth Revolt saw some initial success as like a conservative quote-unquote news site aimed at exposing leftist media. Shapiro billed Truth Revolt as the quote-unquote anti-media matters. Now Shapiro admits that Truth Revolt ultimately wasn't very sustainable because the whole website was designed around trying to generate traffic by being linked by Drudge Report. And at the time... <laughs> That's like literally literally like a third of right-wing media in the early 2000s to mid-aughts. Like that was Alex Jones's whole strategy yeah. for a while too. Yeah, the, the, the whole point was creating headlines that would be linked by this conservative news aggregator. And this isn't a very sustainable business model, at least that's what Ben now claims. And because Truth Revolt was operating under the Freedom Center, it was run as a nonprofit and received very limited funding and little to no advertising budget. But even back then, there was a big focus on creating video content to fill out the site and grow its own YouTube page. I have, I, have a, I have a wonderful screenshot here of some old Truth Revolt videos from like nine, ten years ago. We have brass tacks on immigration. Andrew Clavan, I think his name is Clavan. He's, he's one of the main Daily Wire guys now, but he was involved mm. way, way back then. He has a video on uh, Obama conspiracy theories, which I'm sure that's great. Yeah, I can't wait to dig into that one. Uh, ben Shapiro has a lot of videos about why Jews vote leftist. We have uh, uh, videos about Hillary Clinton. We have the, the left's magical thinking. <laughs> There's another Andrew Clavan video called 50 Shades of Barack Obama. So again, all like very, very like 2012 type stuff here. <laughs> like all, all very like early, early 20 yep. teens. They were iterating. They were cooking. They, they were cooking, and like cooking, sometimes your first attempt doesn't really work out. Truth of Vault started declining in around early 2015, but Jeremy Boring was working on a business plan with a more marketing-driven approach. 
Instead of relying on like nonprofit annual donors, Boring wanted to use a more of a for-profit model where they use ad revenue and the larger web traffic generated through marketing on social media, especially on Facebook, to pay for this entire media operation. Now, the old guard of this conservative think tank did not really like this plan. Uh, the Freedom Center actually fired Jeremy Boring when he produced this plan to revamp Truth Revolt, and soon after, Ben Shapiro stepped down. This was in April of 2015. Jeremy Boring... Jeremy and Ben attempted to buy out the site, but that didn't pan out, and eventually Truth Revolt just withered away. Do you know what else slowly withers away over time? Uh, you, without the products and services that support this podcast. That's right. All right, we are back. Thank the maker for all of those wonderful products and services that let me spend about 10 hours a day watching Daily Wire videos so I can <laughs> write like 4,000 words. Truly, this, this, was, this was Sophie's grand dream when she began this. <laughs> Just have a wall of computers constantly mm -hmm. playing Daily Wire plus exclusive yeah. content. That was the pitch we came to corporate with. What if we exposed a man to all of the Daily Wire one could possibly consume? Oh, oh boy. All right. So, Jeremy Boring, failed movie, failed movie producer, failed screenwriter, has been fired from Truth Revolt. Ben Shapiro, his colleague in arms, steps down in solidarity. We love to see workers unite. So, uh, Shapiro and Boring still liked their plan to use ad revenue and social media advertising to make a for-profit media company. So, in 2015, they looked for other investors to fund a new website. And it just so happened that around this time, two Texas billionaires, known as the Wilkes Brothers, were looking to use their fracking fortune to, quote-unquote, influence culture. There's that, there's that term again. Through a mutual friend, Boring was able to secure millions of dollars in seed money from the Wilkes, who also later went on to fund PragerU. With an influx of cash on hand, Ben and Jeremy started The Daily Wire, initially just as a conservative news site, but with ambitions to become an entire conservative entertainment production and distribution house. Instead of relying on donors or links from news aggregators, their new approach was focused on creating and cultivating a long-term audience. They first prioritized quote-unquote investing in making Ben and other up-and-coming conservative figureheads more famous, in particular using an intentional social media strategy to propel people from out of the conservative bubble into the popular zeitgeist. Specifically, Jeremy Boring worked to increase the personal brand awareness on sites other than Twitter, where generally most of these writers spend most of their social media hours. The point was to not just do it on Twitter, instead do it on the other social media sites where actual, like, regular people spend more of their time. Because it's mostly just other writers on Twitter versus the, the actual audience that The Daily Wire wanted to attract were mostly spending their time on places like Facebook or Instagram. So 14 months in, The Daily Wire was already cash flow positive. And we see this approach of specifically trying to, like, create celebrity. It, it really paid off. We, if, if you look at 
how the how like how like the cultural figure of the, of Ben Shapiro specifically kind of emerged in the mid two thousands. Like he he became such a such like a meme, such like a recognizable character through very simple marketing on like YouTube on Facebook. It was it was wildly successful. Like you, you cannot open up YouTube without seeing a Ben Shapiro destroys college student on campus video. Like ev- every single every single time. Now, on top of making a news site, they also decided to move into podcasting, a very controversial medium. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one quote from Ben here. Quote, One area that we had no idea was going to be the center of revenue was the actual podcast. When I look back at the business plan, what we had allocated for the amount of revenue from the podcast was minimal compared to how successful the podcast became. And that cannot be understated. The Daily Wire makes a shitload of money on their podcast. Yeah, we all we all were surprised by how lucrative pro- podcasting wound up being. Like because it was it was around for like a decade or so before it was it before people were really making any money off of it. It's it it kind of snowballed very quickly once advertisers realized it was something they could get in on. But like it was there was a long time where it was just sort of like a thing weird little guys like Joe Rogan did and and most people didn't really think about them much. Yeah, and their social media advertising plan also worked outrageously well, uh, especially on Facebook. Routinely, over the past few years, stories published by The Daily Wire received more likes, shares, and comments on Facebook than any other news publisher by a wide margin. Shapiro has more followers in The Washington Post. Their engagement outpaces The New York Times, The Washington Post, NBC, CNN and Fox News on average by over 10 times, and they often get more clicks on their articles than all of those outlets combined. They have like, they figured out a really successful method to promoting their news content in a way that really no one else has been able to replicate. Utilizing provocative rage bait propagandized by a select few of online personalities The Daily Wire has been able to expand the brand recognition of not just their own site, but also the personal brand of its own hosts. Ben and Jeremy brought over some of the people from Truth Revolt, but they were also scouting for new talent among the 2016 conservative sphere to invest their newly acquired fracking resources into. Another quote from Ben is like, surround yourself with people who are going to be successful, unquote particularly not like going after people who are currently popular, but trying to find up and coming uh, content creators who they think they can turn into being much more successful than uh, what they currently started as. Among the people they recruited was the relatively unknown extremist Christian writer and radio talk show host, Matt Walsh, who we will get to in a sec. The slightly more famous blogger, Candace Owens, who was picked up a few years prior by the conservative student group Turning Point USA to be their quote, Director of Urban Engagement, which is an awful title. Mm-hmm. I wonder what they mean by I wonder what they mean by urban engagement. And then in uh, in 2020, after being a Daily Wire correspondent for a few years and helping to launch Ted Cruz's own podcast, the Daily Wire hired failed actor Michael Knowles, who's basically a discount Matt Walsh, to host his own podcast. And finally, in 2022, The Daily Wire recruited Jordan Peterson, probably their biggest get to date, uh, after he quote-unquote retired from the University of Toronto. The original funding pitch to the Wilkes brothers, who were looking to influence culture, 
explicitly positioned the Daily Wire not just as a news site, but as a prospective alternative to the liberal Hollywood monopoly. Uh, there's a there's a really a really interesting quote here from Jeremy Boring. Quote. I think there is a path for conservatives to create entertainment, but I think you have to go about it in a roundabout way. We need a marketing and distribution mechanism that allows us to actually put an audience on the target, because Hollywood will never cooperate even if you manage to make a great film. They'll never cooperate. They'll make it very difficult for you. With Ben and with what we've been doing at Truth Revolt, we can make something that's capable of marketing whatever we produced thereafter for this particular audience, unquote. So there he's emphasizing that no matter the quality of the actual content you create, for this sort of conservative media ecosystem, you first need to actually build an audience that will be able to find it. That's like their first step, is building up this audience, and then they can focus on actually making the content, just because of how this distribution system works. That At least that was, that was Jeremy's take on that. Do you know what else is really important for building up a sustainable audience? Products? That's right. Uh, trustworthy products and services that our audience knows are of, of fantastic, fantastic quality. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the only way. We are also supported by the Wilkes brothers, but, but directly through selling hydraulic fracturing technology. So frack your backyard and uh, join the fractvolution. We're fracking back here. All right. Mm. That was just a wonderful, a wonderful frack break. I My my back feels so much, so much, so much more loose after yeah, I just got yeah. fracked for like The house minutes. across from me exploded when uh, fracturing fluid released natural gas that was then ignited by an oven. Speaking of, speaking of fracking, I, I think we're both actually, even though we're on different sides of the country, we're both in like a ridiculous cold freeze right now. It's 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 pretty cold. Yes, I, it is. It is twenty two degrees right now. Yeah, it's like sixteen or something here. Yeah, yeah. And you're in Atlanta, so you are the last person alive in the entire city. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm sure fracking has done nothing to contribute to this. Um. Anyway, so let's 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 turn our dials now to twenty twenty one once again normal year, nothing bad happened, just a fun time overall. In 2021, the Daily Wire relocated from liberal Hollywood, California to Nashville, Tennessee, with hopes of creating their own conservative entertainment empire in the Music City. After over half a decade of building up an audience, the Daily Wire started to shift towards creating in-house entertainment media like movies and TV, as well as producing their own neatly packaged documentaries to serve as a cultural catalyst in a way that a daily podcast show like The Ben Shapiro Show just can't, right? Like, we, we put out a daily podcast, and because it's a daily show, it can only have a certain level of impact for all the things we cover in a way that, you know, a, a, a highly produced documentary can have, like, a little bit more, like, easily observable impact just because of how it's being packaged, so th they saw this and decided they wanted to start putting a lot of resources into their own documentaries as well as their podcasts. But it wasn't just documentaries. In 2021, they also distributed their first movie, Run, Hide, Fight, 
38% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it is a school shooter thriller movie <laughs> that I yes. have not watched. I have, I have watched a lot of the Daily Wire's original content. I am not watching Run, Hide, Fight. I'm sorry. I'm just not doing it. Yeah, I don't really want to watch Die Hard with school shooters and a teenage girl. That seems a bit on the nose. No, I, I, I just, I simply refuse. Four other original Daily Wire movies have come out since then, uh, which we'll get to some of those in the next episode. Now, before 2020, the Daily Wire was making some exclusive content behind, like, a membership paywall for something that they called Daily Wire All Access. But across 2021 and into 2022, they rebranded and pivoted hard into promoting their own subscription-based streaming service, the Daily Wire Plus. Again, they are nothing if not original. This was during a wave of Plus branded streaming services. We have uh, uh, Disney Plus, we have Paramount Plus. I'm sure there's probably many others that I'm just not going to bother even uh, looking up. But the Daily Wire Plus, the hit new streaming service that I'm sure your great uncle has. <laughs> Quote, the Daily Wire Plus is the streaming home of the Daily Wire, Jordan Peterson, Movies, PragerU, and Daily Wire Kids. We're one of America's fastest-growing media companies and counter-cultural outlets for news, opinion, and entertainment. We're building the future you want to see. Unquote. That's their, that's their, little, little, their little tagline. Thrilling. Yes. Truly the new line cinema of racism. Such groundbreaking original content includes My Dinner with Trump. Oh my god, I hadn't even heard of that one. Are you fucking kidding me? No, what I'm is, not kidding. Is, is, it, is it actually a My Dinner with Andre parody, or is it just something completely disconnected that they stole a famous title for? They just stole the famous title for God damn it. It would be really funny if it was just a shot-for-shot shot remake of My Dinner with Andre, but with but with Andre as Trump. Like I would, that's respectable. That's actually respectable. <laughs> that would I would watch that movie tonight. No, actually. it's 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 just a filmed dinner with Trump and like various political advisors. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, that's so lame. Um, we have. How'd it do? <laughs> The, I I don't believe the Daily Wire is releasing their streaming metrics, just like Netflix. They're keeping them secret. S similar companies, yeah. yeah, very similar. Um, we have other other hit hit documentaries like uh, Kanye West's favorite, uh, "The Greatest Lie Ever Sold" by Candace Owens. Oh God! An extremely racist misinformation, or sorry, disinformation documentary about uh -huh. uh, about George Floyd. We have uh, 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 that Mandalorian actress's movie, Terror on the Prairie. Uh, we have a whole bunch of a whole bunch of stuff from Jordan Peterson after he uh, left uh, the University of Toronto and got and got kicked off Twitter. That's the exact time that he was hired. At Daily Wire. He's a whole bunch of stuff of just like roundtable discussions on like the Bible, and yeah. I, I believe he has that uh, dragon mythology. Oh, it's great! Now that that's that's a good show. I've watched all of that one that's, with Cody, yes, yes. and we we enjoyed ourselves quite a lot. We have uh, we have a making a murderer ripoff documentary by Candace Owens called "Convicting a Murderer." Again, truly original stuff. Great. But it's not just movies, TV shows, and documentaries. It's also, like, like we mentioned, their, their, their hit podcasts. Quote, 
The Daily Wire Plus Podcast Network is America's sixth largest podcast publisher and produces several of the top-ranked podcasts in America, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Jordan B. Peterson Podcast, Candace with Candace Owens, The Matt Walsh Show, The Michael Knowles Show, and The Morning Wire, some of which do quite well on the charts and are uh, 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 often sometimes sometimes uh, beaten by Robert's podcast. Um, anyway, so... A little over a year ago, the Daily Wire Plus passed 1 million subscribers. I we don't have any updated numbers on that, so it's it's probably quite higher now, but at least as of as of uh, around a year ago, they had a million subscribers. And again, as of back then, it was bringing in the company 2 thirds of its annual revenue. Uh I think it was like 3 or so years ago, they were making 100 million dollars a year, so they were making bank across their podcasts and exclusive content. They have over 300 employees and are still growing and are investing hundreds of millions of dollars into producing original entertainment content. In their efforts to influence politics through entertainment media, they strive to create cultural events around the release of their original documentaries. The biggest success they've had with this is uh, was in 2022 with What is a Woman? which rocketed the Daily Wire Plus into the online spotlight and proved there was great success to be had with this style of aggressive anti-trans advocacy. The film also put the previously niche figure of Matt Walsh on the map and established Walsh as an authority in queer exterminationist campaigning. I've known of Walsh for like the past decade. After he had a short-lived radio career, he made a name in Christian circles as a provocative blogger, sort of like a young firebrand of the Christian right in the early 20-teens. He had a brief stint at Glenn Beck's The Blaze before being recruited to The Daily Wire in 2017 to do a daily podcast. The goal of documentaries such as What is a Woman, beyond growing The Daily Wire's subscriber count, is also to encourage real-world action while converting attention from the documentary into actual real-world harassment campaigns and live events which fuel even more content. It's like this, it's like this weird content circle that the, that the Daily Wire does. They, they create content to make these real-world events which then can fuel more content. It's, it's, this, it's this perfect loop that generates them a lot of money. On October 21st, 2022, the Daily Wire put on a, quote, rally to end child mutilation at the Tennessee State Capitol, which was streamable on Daily Wire Plus. Exactly. This is a perfect example of creating this event that then allows them to also create exclusive content for their own streaming service. The Daily Wire has been in cahoots with the state government of Tennessee ever since they first moved their headquarters there back in 2021. The General Assembly and governor drafted a resolution welcoming the Daily Wire to the state. Jeremy Boring regularly gets invited to dinners at the governor's mansion. After the release of What is a Woman, the governor of Tennessee announced an investigation into a transgender health clinic in Nashville, and Walsh has made appearances at official state press conferences, and Tennessee's legislator has led the charge on following the Daily Wire and Walsh's political program to target trans people, ban drag shows, and lobbying school boards to ban LGBTQ materials in schools. The Daily Wire was... They were kind of wise to not get too caught up in the Trumpian mud from 2016 to 2020. Instead, in, instead focusing on broader culture war issues, ranging from anti-liberalism, anti-diversity, parental rights, re religious rights, and attacks on LGBTQ people. But 
that also means that they didn't peak during the Trump era in the way that a lot of other conservative content people kind of did. They chose not to capitalize on the Trumpian alt-right moment, and they were way too smart to go full QAnon. Instead, they were kind of waiting on the sidelines, slowly growing an audience to eventually find the right moment to catalyze more widespread support and thrust themselves into the spotlight. Which they have now done by crafting anti-queer propaganda to pick up the baton from the dying QAnon movement, while moving the needle away from ex from like explicitly Q-brained shit to simple stuff like parental rights and the more socially acceptable groomer and save the children talking points. The once more exotic target of pedophilic elites has been shifted to simply any random queer person, which is a much more tangible point of ire. And that's where I'm going to leave us here today, kind of on, on the point that the Daily Wire waited and found the moment in like the first year or two of the Biden presidency to really push themselves to be their own spotlight instead of just relying in the shadow of Donald Trump in the way that someone like Tucker kind of has now done. He's not nearly as popular as he was in 2017, 2018, 2019, and the Daily Wire is now massively influential in a way that they were only kind of rising to prominence back during the alt-right era. So in the next episode, we'll talk a little bit more about the Daily Wire's own anti-queer advocacy and their push for original content, including a brand new child-focused streaming service, which I will talk about in the next episode. Anyway, uh, yeah. uh, Robert, do you, have any, do, do you have any thoughts on the Daily Wire? Well, I know that the child grooming service they're building a big part of what they're looking to do is um try to copy the show bluey which is mm -hmm. like the biggest thing in children's entertainment right now and just casual knowledge of where that is talking to parents and stuff about bluey like i feel like it might be a bridge too far for them um because they're, they're 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 trying to go after they're trying to capture like market from something that's legitimately really fucking good as opposed yep. to just put it like they're the they're kind of most commercially viable movies like the school shooting movie are from what i've read in reviews like just kind of normal mid movies like yep. they don't necessarily feel like a daily wire movie maybe there'll be a couple of points in there maybe but they're they could more or less pass for something you'd see on netflix or amazon prime or whatever which is, you know, if you're competing with mid-grade action movies and the like that that are a, a dime a dozen, you can actually do that fairly well. And it's even possible to like, well, the economics of streaming are actually deeply obscure. But theoretically, it's possible to do as well with that as Netflix does with it, right? Sure. Because people, but if you're trying to replace a children's show that like kids consume voraciously and are deeply in love with, um, and is really well made. I think that's actually a lot harder than they're than they're guessing it's going to be. Like yeah. bored adults who want something to watch when they're drunk at night are a harder audience than little kids who are obsessed with a TV show that is the best in its market. It's it's certainly a gamble, and I w we will talk more about the details of this gamble in the next episode, as yeah. we will also eventually eventually talk about their brand new movie that came out last month. Lady Ballers. All right, we're done. Um, I feel like I should call HR just because you mentioned the name of that movie. <laughs> See you in the next episode.
Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, we're back. Um, I okay. started the episode, Garrison. <laughs> really? You know. Really? It, what, a, what an energetic entry into... I'm tired. <laughs> Tell me things that make me sad. Oh, I don't worry. I will. I, that is my favorite thing to do. Let's let's yeah, let's talk about things that are actually sad for the for the first first half of this episode. You know, the past few years, it's kind of been increasingly profitable to be friendly to the gays, which is kind of a new trend, you know? If 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 you look at the past 20 years or so, it's becoming more more profitable, which you know, we we if you're if you're like a queer accelerationist anarchist, maybe maybe that's a bad thing, right? But if you're just trying to like not get killed uh, in the interim as the climate collapses, it's you know maybe maybe a good thing that 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 generally queer acceptance is has been improving. But as it's been improving, there's also been a pretty sizable backlash from some members of the Christian right who don't really like this or are trying to use this backlash as a way to promote their own economic interests. 
And I don't think this needs to be an either or. I think this, this can definitely be a both scenario. Speaking of, Matthew Walsh, the Catholic self-described fascist. <laughs> this is going to be kind of the, 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 the topic of the first half of this, because he has been able, the, the work he's done has been able to really propel the Daily Wire as an actual like political entity in a way that Shapiro just never really has. Shapiro was really good at creating eye-catching YouTube videos, clickbait and stuff, but he we never really saw him campaigning hard for any political cause. He was never really doing that type of stuff. They come out of different eras in different communities. For one thing, Ben Shapiro is Jewish um, yeah. and came of age and came into prominence in the early 2000s. When conservatives had political power, but basically zero like social cap power as they saw it, right? And so he was always positioned as like, I am sort of the, um, I'm the insurgent conservative, like I, I'm Rush Limbaugh, you know? I'm going yeah. to provide a safe place for you, even though you control the government to a large extent, where I can be yell at and make fun of the people that you think are bad, right? And that's that's the only thing he ever really sought to do is like, LOL, liberals dumb. Walsh comes out of the Christian kind of dominionist adjacent movement at the very least. And their goal has always been capture the seven pillars of of culture, right? And so he he from the beginning has thought of this more as like, I am waging a Christian war against secular society and and doing so like kind of methodically so they they, they just kind of have approached what they're doing fundamentally from a different way and came into it at different times walsh is definitely the most evangelical catholic i've ever seen mm -hmm. <laughs> and which is weird because like back when he was a popular christian blogger his stuff was very popular in evangelical circles even though evangelicals generally are not very friendly to catholics but his stuff was widely shared because he, he was quite provocative. Now, he spent a few years just kind of laying low, running a podcast at, at the Daily Wire, and then What is a Woman really, really propelled him into, into the spotlight, and he got a glimpse of fame and popularity that he's been endlessly trying to replicate. And because this fame was based around hating trans people, that is what he's decided to pivot his whole career uh, to doing. That is his now his his entire focus in life is about how he doesn't like trans people because it was very profitable for him in 2022. So as a part of an ongoing right wing harassment campaign against TikTok influencer and chronic theater kid Dylan Mulvaney, Matt Walsh started a viral boycott campaign against Bud Light for having a brand partnership with a trans person. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time here talking about right-wing boycotts. I'm sure we've all watched, you know, like Nike shoe burnings and Gillette razors being flushed down the toilet and people dropping their Keurigs off rooftops. Generally, boycotts don't tend to work. But this Bud Light thing did show some success. And success in this instance specifically refers to Walsh and the Daily Wire cronies receiving a lot of attention and free publicity. So they sought to replicate this strategy while publicly telegraphing their harassment methodology. Here's, here's two, two tweets from Matt Walsh. Quote, here's what we should do. Pick a victim, gang up on it, and make an example of it. We can't boycott every woke company or even most of them, but we can pick one. It hardly matters which. And target it with a ruthless boycott campaign. Claim one scalp, then move on to the next. 
Our goal is to make pride toxic for brands. If they decide to shove this garbage in our face, they should know that they'll pay a price. It won't be worth whatever they think they'll gain. First Bud Light and now Target. Our campaign is making progress. Let's keep it going. So, as Walsh just said there, uh, Walsh's next target was Target, the uh, department store, uh, due to the store's history of prominent pride displays. In the lead-up to Pride Month during 2023, Target was met with online and in-person harassment with a wave of emails and calls to individual stores accusing them of grooming and indoctrinating kids with the presence of Pride-themed apparel. People started ransacking stores, destroying Pride displays, threatening violence against employees in person, as well as calling in multiple bomb threats into, into many, many different stores, mirroring the harassment campaign against trans clinics and hospitals the year prior, which was also spearheaded by Matt Walsh. We, we've seen this tactic gain prominence. This bomb threat tactic is now quite common among the right. We saw it be called into... There was, there was, there was a, a lot of bomb threats uh, called into like 400 synagogues this past winter, um, that was, you know, most likely done by some form of neo-Nazi, but we've just seen this this specific bomb threat tactic pick up a lot because it it provides a pretty sizable minor or short-term disruption to regular regular services. Now, in response to this wave of harassment, Target Corporate mandated that many stores remove their front-of-store pride displays in late May all, all across the country, but especially in the South. Target released a statement saying they were, quote, making adjustments to our plans given these volatile circumstances, unquote. And these adjustments included relocating or removing pride displays due to, quote, threats impacting our team members' sense of safety and well-being at work, unquote. Uh, employees were also instructed to specifically remove items, quote, at the center of the most significant confrontational behavior, unquote, like shapewear, binders, and tuck-friendly swimwear, and to, quote, Replace them with swimwear to better meet our sales goals, unquote. Now, Walsh claimed that the tuck-friendly swimwear was being marketed to kids, but it only came in adult sizes. A lot of this sort of harassment campaign isn't really based on anything truthful, but that doesn't really matter. Here's a, here's a quote from Walsh again, quote, I think this Target boycott has real staying power. Target has now branded itself as a far-left organization to the point where it's embarrassing to shop there. This is the branding that makes the boycott stick. It happened to Bud Light. I think it's happening to Target. This is what conservatives have missed in the past with failed boycott attempts. It's not enough to simply tell people not to shop somewhere or buy something. You have to make it so that they don't want to. So after a around 5% sales drop in the second quarter, and again, it's hard to actually figure out what's a, what that can be attributed to. Beer sales also hit like their lowest level in recent history yes. last year, just kind of across again, the it, board. It, it, it's hard to see if these things are actually working, but that doesn't matter because the right can claim them as a, as a success. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Target released an update saying, quote, the reaction is a signal for us to pause, adapt, and learn so that our future approach to these moments balances celebration, inclusivity, and broad-based appeal, unquote. And Walsh claimed this, this announcement as a, quote, massive victory. Now, I, I, I hope, you know, I hope many of us aren't, you know, shopping for Pride products at a store like Target, but for a lot of kids and even adults in more conservative areas of, of the country— Target was really the only place to get gender-affirming clothing like binders and trans-friendly swimsuits in person. 
These things can be tricky to buy online. Sometimes you don't want a package showing up to your door if you if you can't be the one to like open it. So Target really was the the only place for a lot of people to have access to this kind of stuff. Now, last year, Michael Knowles tried to kind of replicate the Matt Walsh strategy because it proved to be very very successful. So they had they had Walls going out on on do, doing very similar kind of anti-trans speeches. He he spoke at a lot of the big conservative conferences talking about how we need to eliminate transgenderism. He jumped on this this boycott stuff and uh, addressed his viewers saying, "Quote." We need to make the pride symbol toxic for brands. We need to make companies think twice. As we're making these symbols culturally toxic, we've got to come in with more political force to ban this stuff. Don't back down. The progress conservatives have made on this just between 2021 and 2023, the fact that companies are trying to back off shows that we are winning. Keep pushing much, much harder, unquote. And at the very least, Local governments were responding to this sort of thing. In another instance of the government being in cahoots with the Daily Wire, on July 5th, 2023, the attorneys general of Indiana, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, and South Carolina sent a joint letter addressed to Target's CEO, ostensibly threatening legal action against Target for carrying LGBTQ merchandise. I'm going to read some quotes from this letter because it's a really interesting thing that I've never really seen done before uh, in terms of like five or six of these uh, states all all coming together to to actually affect the market. Quote, Target's pride campaign not only raises concerns under our state's child protection and parental rights laws, but also against our state's economic interests as Target shareholders. Target's management has a fiduciary duty to our states as shareholders in the company. The evidence suggests that Target's directors and officers may be negligent in undertaking the Pride campaign, which negatively affected Target's stock price. Moreover, it may have improperly directed company resources for collateral, political, or social goals unrelated to the company's and its shareholders' best interests. It is likely more profitable to sell the type of pride that enshrines the love of the United States. Target's pride campaign alienates, whereas pride in our country unites. Target's management has no duty to fulfill stores with objectionable goods, let alone endorse or feature them in attention-grabbing displays at the behest of radical activists. However, Target's management does have a fiduciary duty to its shareholders to act in the company's best interests. Target's board and management may not lawfully dilute their fiduciary duties to satisfy the board's, or the left-wing activists, desire to foist contentious political or social agendas upon families and children at the expense of the company's hard-won goodwill and against its best interests, unquote. And <sighs> it's just generally not a great sign when the government is trying to convince a business that it's in their legal and financial interests to throw the gaze to the wolves. <laughs> now it's also yeah that's not how fiduciary duty works like no. it's not a legal principle it's a, a, a more of a, a philosophical principle among capitalists that is dominant but like you actually are not breaking the law by doing something that's not in fiduciary interest of your of your shareholders that's in, among other things basically impossible to pre anyway whatever Th this is all like it, it, it but it, it's a question of like what you can get away with right this is what fascists always do and it's it's a, a, from a strategic standpoint if you're looking at the culture war as a kind of mutual insurgency it's a strategy of denying terrain to the enemy in this case yeah. access to a place that is available in basically every state where where trans people 
can purchase stuff like binders and get to try them on. Like it, it's making life, it's re- it's reducing maneuvering space for the enemy as they see it. Yeah, and this campaign worked specifically because of the Christian right's willingness to use physical violence, property destruction, and threats against workers to achieve their goals. That is why Target caved, because enough of their employees were feeling threatened, enough of their displays were being destroyed and ransacked, no one was held accountable, because uh, they're not going to arrest these people for, for this stuff. And th- that's what caused this to really have any level of success. Now, during Pride Month, uh, back in 2023, uh, Starbucks union members began coming forward saying that Starbucks and store managers weren't letting employees put up their usual Pride decorations, telling workers that it was a safety concern, citing recent incidents at Target and the manufactured Bud Light controversy. Now, Starbucks corporate claimed that they made no policy changes regarding Pride decorations, but that, quote, Retail leaders continue to work with store teams to find ways to celebrate their communities, keeping in mind our safety standards, unquote. Uh, so I think this was more up to kind of like local ownership and local management. The union publicized confirmed instances of managers not letting workers wear pride pins or put up flags. Uh, and then in early June, a regional director ordered a collection of 100 stores across Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri to throw out pride decorations from previous years and were barred from putting up any pride-related decor inside stores. Uh, the union claims that there was workers in a total of 21 states that were not allowed to put up pride decorations. And I think for the for the Daily Wire hosts that are pushing this sort of stuff, and especially Michael Knowles, especially Matt Walsh, their motive is deeply theological for this. But for the Daily Wire, this is deeply economical uh, because all of this also serves as free advertising for the Daily Wire, and it builds the personal brand of their hosts, which is the very thing that Jeremy Boring was trying to get started with Ben Shapiro back during Truth Revolt. This, this was his whole idea: was building up the personal brand of these of these uh, of, of these right wing me- media figures, and all of this anti queer stuff provides really really great marketing uh, to propel these one time very niche figures into actual, like, national spotlight. Do you know what else deserves to be put into the spotlight, Robert? No, that's a crime. Uh, all, all of my ideas are to suggest crimes, so let's just move on. Let's just, let's, you know, I, I think ads are what yeah, deserves uh-huh. the, there we go. <laughs> the spotlight. Great. All right. We are back. It's once again time to talk about the Daily Wire Plus and their and their hit new streaming service. So, when Jeremy Boring announced the Daily Wire Plus back in uh, 2022, the early marketing was made in response to the Disney Company having very, 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 very slight pushback on Florida's "Don't Say Gay" bill. Uh, now, a, a, a big part of the Daily Wire Plus announcement was about how Disney has been wokeifying children's TV shows. And so, the Daily Wire decided to position itself as a safe alternative media hub for conservative families. I'm going to play a, a short clip from the announcement. There is unbelievable kids' content in the market. The beauty of kids' content is that unlike adult content, there's always new kids. And they go back and watch it. So there's an unbelievable library of content. Most of it's at Disney, let's be honest. But it's not that the content isn't great. It's that you can't trust the platform. 
You can't put your kids in front of a classic piece of Disney content because you don't know that the very next thing that plays won't be that not-so-secret gay agenda that teaches your daughter that she's a boy. That's why we have to have Daily Wire Plus. <laughs> so that is, that is what they're framing the Daily Wire Plus as. That's, that's why the Daily Wire Plus is important. Also, I, I love how he said that kids' content's so profitable because there keeps being kids, in, unlike adult content, which doesn't make any sense because yeah. kids does turn he, into adults. Does he adults. think we stopped aging, that like yeah. a plague hit? <laughs> it, just, it doesn't make any sense at all. Like, yeah, that's a, like a reverse children of men sort of deal. <laughs> anyway. God, what a mess that would be. Man, that's, a not, that's not a bad idea for a movie. Just people keep making more babies, but they never grow up. So just like a, a, a dwindling number of adults and infinite babies. That's See, not bad. Not a bad idea. This is why I like watching Jeremy Boring. Because yeah. there's so many moments like this. Because he's so not charismatic, but mm -hmm. his his complete void just makes just, I I I just can't stop staring into the void. Yeah, I, I already just listening to thirty seconds of him. I've had an idea for a multi million dollar adaptation, gritty adaptation of the Rugrats. I think we could really we could make a lot of money with this. So. A press release put out by the Daily Wire itself went into more detail about the company's child content initiative. Now, I'm going to read this. This is a direct quote. Quote, On Wednesday evening, the Daily Wire's co-CEO and God King, Jeremy Boring, announced at the Daily Wire company town hall that the company will invest a minimum of $100 million over the next three years into a line of live action and animated children's entertainment on its streaming platform, unquote. And that, that term, God King, is constantly how Jeremy refers to himself, which I guess is supposed to be a joke. <laughs> but the fact that he does it at all is, is, is the actual joke. The, the, the fact that he just calls himself the God King is what a, what a perfect look into the soul of just a, a completely dead man. Yeah. He, the, the God King of the Daily Wire. This, th that's, that's been like rewritten in like Deadline, Variety, like actual publications have been forced to write the God King, Jeremy Boring. Anyway, so to start this child content initiative, Jeremy brought some writers from Netflix's VeggieTales uh, and the Babylon Bee to head up their kids' content. I, I, ha I have a picture in my script here that Robert can see of Eric Branscum, which is a great name. <laughs> yeah, that is an amazing name. <laughs> Who is the co-creator of the first Daily Wire kids show, Chip Chilla. And Robert, do you want to describe what's in this, what's in this picture of Eric? Yeah, well, there is a, a heavy set man wearing a t-shirt that is, to be frank, a little tighter than is comfortable. Uh, he's got a red beard. He has sunglasses on. It looks like right up above his hairline. A massive Confederate flag lines the wall behind <laughs> him, and he appears to be casually pointing a handgun at his penis. At his dick, yes, yes. <laughs> Can't tell if his finger's through the trigger guard, but I hope so. Yeah. Um, so that is the co-creator of Chip Chilla, which we will we, we will get to in a sec. Now, I, I don't know if this oh, is... Oh, also, there are four to six moist spots on his shirt. <laughs> and <laughs> it does not... 
It doesn't, it's not a flattering look. I, I'm not body shaming the man. I'm just saying there are four to six moist spots on his shirt, and I wouldn't want to be filmed with, with that many moist spots on my <laughs> shirt while pointing a gun at my dick in front of a Confederate flag. Now, I, I don't know if this is either despite or because of the Daily Wire's constant attacks on how Disney has a gay agenda, but the, the Daily Wire did manage to acquire some talent from Disney. In August of 2022, they recruited the showrunner of the Emmy-winning animated series Rapunzel's Tangled Adventure, Chris Sonnenberg, to be the senior VP of animation development and production at The Daily Wire. Uh, now, they most likely got this guy via uh, Jeremy Boring's and Sonnenberg's mutual friend, Zachary Levi, who, again, was in uh, was in Boring's first movie. And Zachary Levi also starred as Flynn Rider in Tangled and, these, this, and this Tangled animated series for the Disney Channel. So I- I'm guessing this is how this connection was made. But yeah, so this this guy who was actually like a very successful, like mainstream showrunner yeah. for animated animated shows some somehow decided to agree to get hired by the daily wire and th- this is this is now his job is overseeing the animated production for chip chilla yeah which is the bluey knockoff i mean yes. i get it among other things there's been a lot of layoffs in animation i have no doubt that a number of people who don't i uh, align ideologically but are desperate for a job and just more morally flexible than others are going to wind up working for this project yeah yeah um <sighs> so this past october the daily wire's multi-year initiative to create a slate of children's programming finally had something to show in another live-streamed announcement, Jeremy Boring ranted about how Disney is using their parent-trusted brand to, quote, indoctrinate children into the LGBTQIA cult, unquote. Um, now, while he praised Walt Disney as an American entrepreneur, Jeremy Boring derided the current state of the Disney company as, quote, pushing all of the worst excesses of the woke left including paying for employees' abortions, promoting anti-racism training, and, quote, going to war on behalf of the left-wing social policy in Florida, unquote. Boring framed Disney's uh, quite tame political stances as a huge cultural loss for conservatives. And here's a part of that announcement. It would be impossible to overstate just how big a loss this is for Americans who believe in basic reality. Disney controls the greatest content library ever created. Their cultural reach, particularly with children, is beyond anything that's ever existed. Recognizing the scope of this loss, the Daily Wire announced that we would spend $100 million over three years to begin our own kids' entertainment company. And today, on the 100th anniversary of the day Walt Disney founded his company, I'm proud to announce the launch of ours. Introducing Bent Key, an entirely new company from the (laughs) Daily Wire, a company dedicated to creating the next generation of timeless stories to transport kids into a world of adventure, imagination, and joy. Okay, okay. So, bent, bent key. Robert, how do you how do you feel about one the name the name bent key and the and the the bent key logo? The bent key logo looks like a flaccid penis. He <laughs> does kind of look like a flaccid penis, yeah. doesn't it? I don't know. It's not a an appealing name. I, you know, one thing you've got to say for Walt Disney, 
And I guess it's impossible to say. Like, uh, my my head says there's something just kind of inherently attractive about the last name Disney. Yeah. That, like, made it always a good brand. But maybe if, like, if he'd been named Bluppo, would it have worked? Would Bluppo Entertainment be the, be the cultural powerhouse that it became? Um, I can't even, we can't answer, Disney's such a thing, you can't answer it even. Yeah. They could have gone with boring entertainment, but I guess they Bo- didn't. Want yeah, that to. was not going to happen. Bleppo's <laughs> a better one than boring. <laughs> but yeah, bent key. That's that's the word bent and the word key. And yeah, the the logo is this lowercase b with a little droopy arm connecting to the letter k. Yeah. Which doesn't really look like a key, but does look a little bit like an abstracted penis. You've got yeah. the B part kind of forming the head. You've got the tines of the key are two balls. I would have given it three tines if I was making the key, just so it didn't look like balls. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, do you know what else is a really important announcement that we have for our audience? No. It's these products and services that support this podcast. Pay close attention. This is crucial information about the fight for America and to, to secure our values. Okay. All right, we are, we are back. Back to talk about Bent Key Entertainment, the new hit streaming service that your kids can enjoy. So, the, the Daily Wire Kids content used to be under the banner of just Daily Wire Kids or DW Kids, right? And the choice to rebrand, even with a name as silly as Bentkey, I think is actually one of their smarter moves here. They recognized that the Daily Wire is a very politically charged and possibly limiting title if they want to create a, a growing children's media company. Now, uh, ever since What is a Woman, and up to their most recent releases, like Lady Ballers, the name The Daily Wire has actually been hidden or not included in like legal contracts and forms when people are signing up to these projects. So I think Bent Key allows them to cast the, the widest net possible to not only you know get people to buy their service, but also to get people to collaborate with them on media. And it also like it also works to attract parents that might not even be aware of what the Daily Wire is. It's just this new kids streaming service company. And uh, also, uh, Bent Key Ventures also happens to be the name of the Daily Wire's parent company. So uh, that's probably why they picked it. I, I, I still don't know what Bent Key means, but it, it's also the name of, of the parent company for the, the, for the Daily Wire, which is probably the name they're going to use for a lot of like their contracts, and they're trying to like get like actors and like producers to sign into their stuff because whenever someone sees the daily wire on something if they're if they're smart at all they'll be like absolutely not um but if 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 the word bent key is on there instead maybe that won't raise as many red flags so the new child focused app is available for only 99 dollars a year hell hell of a steal wow and at launch included 150 episodes across 18 different shows, four of which were produced in-house, with new episodes airing every Saturday morning. Their flagship show, Chip Chilla, is about a family of homeschooled chinchillas. Now, some have pointed out that this that this appears to be a blatant conservative ripoff of the very popular kids' show Bluey. Yes. 
<laughs> and I have I have a picture comparing Bluey and Chipchilla down, here. Down the same fucking animation style. Yeah, except except I think this also shows that if you've seen any of the Bluey art, you can compare it to the Chipchilla art. They do look similar in like color palette, but there is a massive difference in like the appealing design of Bluey, which actually looks pretty good, versus the the design of the Chipchilla characters just looks slightly off. It it looks kind of like they're all on like half a tab of acid. Versus yeah, <laughs> versus Bluey looks like has like pretty good character design. Like it, it has it has a lot of it has a lot of range for like expressions. Versus everyone in Chipchilla just all has the same like wide eyed look. Pretty widely considered to be like a, a one of the better children's animated shows that's that's just existed. Yeah. So somehow the somehow the the blue dog show must have been too woke. So it, instead, in the Daily Wires version, the kids are all homeschooled and operate as like a stereotypical nuclear family. Mm-hmm. So th- this was th- this this was the first show they announced, but they have others. Uh, their their other original content includes a show where a middle aged woman talks to a dog puppet. God, so yeah, Lamb Chop, okay. And and two other original live action shows star child actors that teach fitness and history to kids. And all of between all of the Daily Wire original content I've watched, the thing I feel most uncomfortable about is the amount of child actors who've been forced into doing this who don't know anything about the Daily Wire or no. like, politics. They're just these poor kids who've now been forced to participate in this like evil machine. Um now I'm gonna play a one minute one minute trailer for Robert. I'm not gonna play it for the audience here because you don't need to just hear this ad, but you will hear our reactions afterwards. So here is for Robert. Here is the trailer for Bent Key. Oh God. How do you feel about the Bent Key trailer, Robert? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'll see if it takes off. I'm sure it could be a profitable business, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of capturing the wider cultural market, uh, I don't see it being a Disney-level success or even, like, a Nickelodeon-level success. I'm looking at it right now. On Twitter, it's got 490 likes and 600-something thousand views. So, again, I can see them getting enough downloads to make this maybe worthwhile. If they're blo- if they're spending $30 million or more a year on production... That is going to be kind of hard, especially given like bandwidth costs and shit to, to, I don't know. We'll say, yeah, I wouldn't be I, surprised if it's able to be a functional business. I don't think, I don't see anything on there that makes me think, oh, this is kids are going to fall in love with this shit. Most of these, most great like children's networks and children's like entertainment companies were driven by iconic successes that like absolutely took over and were like dominant culturally. You think about like, um, in the early '90s, shit like uh, 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 Aladdin, right, and like, or or, or um, the Lion King, and how fucking everywhere, and how a generation before you had, you know, the earlier generation of Disney animated movies. You think about stuff like um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, or like the uh, that kind of stuff was was not just it was dominant among kids, but it also like. Adults continue to watch it for generations, and I've never run into anybody outside of weird right wing, outside of not even weird right wing circles. I've never run out into anybody who has not worked for the Daily Wire talking about these shows. Yes, and I, I think there's a few things about that. I think one, they don't need kids to like it; they only need parents to 
pay the mm-hmm. annual fee. Yeah, for it to make sense as a business, for it to for it to do culturally what they want, rather more is required. At, at least a few years ago, they were pulling in over a hundred million dollars in revenue per year, and one thing the daily wire has shown is that they are kind of playing the long game with this sort of stuff they're not looking for short-term profit they're looking to slowly build dominance in this industry mostly to just fulfill jeremy and ben's dreams of working in hollywood like that's all this is is that they're trying to fill their childhood dreams of making movies so all of this is just being put towards making industry connections to be able to actually just make tv and 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 uh and films like that, that that that's all this is actually for so which leads us to the most ambitious upcoming bent key production a, a live action fairy tale adaption written by jeremy boring in response to disney's own upcoming remake of their classic film snow white the company disney founded doesn't agree with their founder and visionary they're remaking their own iconic film nearly 100 years later they've decided to make some key changes their lead actress, the new Snow White, Rachel Ziegler, has summed it up, saying, quote, I just mean, it's no longer 1937. We absolutely wrote a Snow White that she's not going to be saved by the prince and she's not going to be dreaming about true love. She's dreaming about becoming the leader she knows she can be and the leader that her late father told her she could be if she was fearless, fair, brave, and true. While mm. Disney still uses Walt's name, they've all but abandoned his legacy. <laughs> Instead of telling stories about timeless truth, what the ancient fairy tales were all about, Disney's new Snow White is an apology for their past and will expose children to the popular but destructive lies of the current moment. Which is why, in addition to announcing the launch of our kids' entertainment company, I also want to announce today that company's first live-action feature film. It's a story about a princess and a prince, about beauty and vanity, about love and its power to raise us from death to life. It's our own uh-huh. adaptation of an ancient fairy tale. It's coming in 2024, and it's called... So, I, bef- before I play the rest of the trailer for Robert, there is a few funny things about this clip that I just played for the audience as well. Mostly when he's describing, like, the the new Disney Snow White. It's, like, a very, like, sensible message that the lead actor was talking about. And he's like, well, this is horrible! A mansion! I also don't even think it's a great message. Like, it's a very conservative message that, like, this woman is born to lead, and it is about her finding her place in the bred-in hierarchy of her of her state. Like, that's a pretty conservative message. They just hate it because a wom said it. Yes, but now I will I will play you the 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 very brief like thirty second trailer based on like this one this one thing they've shot. Once upon a time. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so bad. A tale of timeless truth. Wow, little on the nose. Oh my God, she's even got a basket of red apples. The kind of apples that don't exist anywhere but a gene engineered farm. Oh my God. Oh, and it's clearly yes. Snow White. Oh my yeah. God! Yes. Ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> so I, I actually, I actually do want to play that for the audience because it's just yeah, so no, funny. Yeah, no, no, keep that in there. That's that's because like the song they've got in there is like completely without wonder. It's just like once upon a time a prince will come or some shit. Yeah. She's like in the woods picking apples that are like the, a color of red that you don't even see in the like the, not a natural red at all. 
just just profoundly off-putting and weird. So, a hundred and seventy seventeen thousand views. So, I don't know. We'll see if this beats the original Snow White or whatever Snow White real actors and writers are making. So this is this is Snow White and the Evil Queen. And yeah. I'm not sure if you picked this up. This is this is starring failed actor and the Daily Wire's own Gen Z female clone of Ben Shapiro, Brett Cooper as Snow White. It's that it's that other Daily Wire host that looks like a weird female version of Ben Shapiro is starring as Snow White and it all just looks like really bad cosplay. Like mm-hmm. The it is it was quite something. So that is that is their first bent key upcoming original movie. So I'm sure everyone's going to be excited for that one. And like it seems the entire bent key strategy is to either be so banal that it it appeals to like unassuming parents who don't know what what the Daily Wire is, or to create these like fake culture war outrage moments to scare parents into thinking that woke corporations are trying to turn their kids gay or trying are trying to yeah. turn their kids into like feminists and the only way to stop that is to give the daily wire 100 dollars a year to watch failed screenwriters and actors poorly imitate better pieces of film and tv i think the trouble they're going to have here is that there's a i think a discrepancy between what would do the best job of achieving what they claim is their social mission right which is uh, incepting conservative ideas into mass culture by taking over pop entertainment. Um, and they're, what is clearly their more important goal, which is making a lot of money. Because the best way to make a lot of money, and I think they there's a good chance they can succeed building a content network for their weirdo fans that costs $100 a year. But if they want to reach the most people, the best thing to do would be to get to a point where they can sell their videos streaming to Netflix and the like. Um, But that doesn't keep people in their walled garden and also probably is less profitable over time than having a monopoly on this shit. And I, so I, I don't know what they're going to choose to do. Um, That'll be interesting to watch, but yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing as a business, this could work for sure. We'll see about the other stuff. And again, so this is, this is only half of their efforts. Because yeah. on top of the $100 million put towards children's programming, which has resulted in Bent Key, the Daily Wire Plus was also putting an additional $100 million into more adult-oriented entertainment. Now, most of the Daily Wire's production effort has been going into adapting the Christian Arthurian novels The Pendragon Cycle into a live-action seven-episode miniseries directed by Jeremy Boring. The upcoming fantasy series just wrapped filming in Europe this past fall, the cast is mostly made up of, like, C-list actors. Never, never, I don't know where they made this garrison, but never has a production seemed more Croatia than this. Um, it's filmed in Hungary and Italy, so. Oh my god, ah, I was close, I was close. <laughs> there you go, there you go. Ah, okay. The, the cast is made up of mostly, like, C-list actors, some Daily Wire staff, and actors from small roles in, like, Game of Thrones and The Witcher. This is coming out later this year. It's based on this series of novels that or that came out in the in the two thousands. It's mm-hmm. it's it's like an Arthurian story, but set slightly before um, mm. the the rise of like England. It's it's it, it's during like uh, uh, the fall of like British Rome, I think, is what they call it. Now, guys, I'm sorry. We all got to see the uh, a great Arthurian cycle movie recently, 
And something tells me this one's going to have a lot less of a guy coming into a scarf. You you don't think you don't think this will be as good as the Green Knight? I I don't think we're gonna get a real fucking clear shot of one guy's come in a scarf. I'll tell See, you that. I much. I I trust director Jeremy Boring's vision. To... <laughs> oh man. Um, but the project I am the most excited about is that the Daily Wire has acquired exclusive rights to adapt Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged into oh, a television good. series. Oh, which, good. Uh, oh, my that's, God. That's like that's like being an opponent of the Nazis in 1941 and hearing that they've just invaded the Soviet Union. Like, oh, thank God. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, we're on the downswing of this one, boys. I am, <laughs> like, I am so excited to see <laughs> the libertarian wet dream that's going to be this Atlas Shrugged TV show. I, there is no one else I would rather adapt to Atlas Shrugged than The Daily Wire. In part because Atlas Shrugged is like famously like the least filmable thing of all time like it's it's the fountainheads actually could be like a fine movie but atlas i don't i'm i'm excited i don't to think see you can make atlas shrugged and do i i hope i hope they do shot for shot that one like 70 page speech that what's his name goes on oh yeah that's oh, yeah. that's what i really want uh so yeah um i am actually Excited to excited to not like hate watch, but like mm -hmm. curiously staring into the void, watch their Atlas, uh, their Atlas Shrug show. But uh, the one Daily Wire Plus series that I am not very much excited about is an upcoming adult animated scripted series created by Adam Carolla entitled Mr. Burcham. God in heaven. Yeah, I saw ads for this one. <laughs> yeah. This show's description sounds like the most old man yells at cloud premise I've ever heard. Quote, Mr. Burcham attempts to navigate a world he doesn't understand or approve of. He's befuddled by his gaming streamer's son, Eddie, annoyed at his selfie-taking snowflake students, and is constantly at war with the school district's appointed Jedi, Justice, Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion Officer, Mr. Carponzi. Unquote. So that's a, that's the description of the show, which I don't know about you. That sounds like a horrible time. The cast includes Corolla as Mr. Burcham, um, Megan Kelly, Roseanne Barr, conservative comedian Tyler Fisher, Daily Wire hosts Brett Cooper and Candace Owens, comedian sure. uh, Alonzo uh, Broden, a former Amy Schumer writer Kyle Dunningen, oh. and un unfortunately, Danny Trejo and Patrick Warburton. That that last one hurts. That last one hurts. I know. That, I know. That's mm. I know. It's it can't be it, that it hard is, up, Patrick. It is Come real on, man. Sad. Let's. I I am going to play this for the audience uh, I, because oh my. I guess I'm not surprised that being in Venture Brothers didn't pay enough for him to avoid this. Yeah, and uh, apparently Warburton is is a conservative. Um, yeah. I, I, I am interested to see what some of these people were told before they agreed to this, because I know the Daily mm -hmm. Wire's name has been hidden in, in a lot of contracts. Well, and, and Adam Carolla is know. a real comedian. Yes. Like, I, yes. I didn't say good, but like he is somebody who established a career in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. I get it. So Yeah, and is... it looks like fucking Brickleberry and all those other like dog shit sheep shit cartoons. Yeah. It looks, it, it looks bad. Um yeah. let's 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 have fun listening to this though. Tell me what you need. Jump into the first one. Rolling, speed, action. Sawbuck's looking a little chubby wubby. So I bought Ama some new food Amazing voice acting by Megan Kelly. Yeah. 
Dogs are supposed to eat meat. They're descendants of wolves. You ever see a vegan wolf on the Nature Channel? I'm a vegan. Very, very funny Coffee's vegan show. closers, ladies. Listen up. Hey, don't oh my God. Prison hug. Don't do anything stupid. Earthen last year. I'm a heteronormative, cisgendered, white male. For which I apologize. I'm black oh and that God. used to be enough, but I'm also bilingual and I'm non-binary. We're the army. Oh we drink God. more before 9 a.m. than you Navy pukes do all day. He rubbed all the fur off his emotional support ferret. The damn thing looked like a four-legged Oh, Roseanne Barr. Oh, God. Charity and work. Two words that should never go together. Like women and opinions. I want to Amazing. They're salty and make me dizzy. Sorry, just need to find a thingy to fix my gaming chair. When I was on the construction site, my chair was a five-gallon bucket. It was also my toilet. <laughs> oh, See, it's, what's amazing about that... All of the Megan Kelly and Canada, like terrible voices, no terrible character voice to them. Adam Carolla sounds like a parody of himself. He's going too hard into gruff. It just, it's, I, maybe, maybe if I see the show, it'll be better because it may, it may just have picked some lines where he was doing that, but there's not much character to his voice. What I will say is, I, I hate that he's in this, but Patrick Burton, still a pro. Every, that man, that man can do a line read. That man knows how to do a fucking line read. No, it, it, it's weird how many of these are like actual comedians who have been mm-hmm. who are being forced to read like non-binary, and mm-hmm. they're like th- they don't know what non-binary means. They're just being no. forced to read a script written by Ben Shapiro, and <laughs> they're like, "What are these words? It doesn't matter. Just keep going." Yeah, get your paycheck. I don't know. It, it's 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 a bummer. Um, yeah. I it's weird because like Adam Carolla, I've never felt anything positive towards or particularly negative towards until recently. I guess now I'm on the negative side. Even with this, I still feel overall good about Patrick Warburton. He's just given me too much. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's it'll true. take a lot. <laughs> so this this that is most of what I wanted to talk about, because the only other Daily Wire project I have anything to say about is the movie that came out a few months ago, Lady Ballers. And I, I, could, not, I could not fit my Lady Ballers thoughts into this episode because that is, that is going to be its own, its own special yeah, th- th- event. Th- that's that's going to be your Fittigan's wake. <laughs> yes. So a few weeks ago, I watched it for the first time. I took a lot of notes. I'm going to watch it again here. And... We are going to go deep into the production of this movie. This thing was shot. Mm-hmm. This, this, uh, just, just, just as a peek of, 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 of the writing quality you're, you're about to hear about, the whole script was written in two weeks. It, it, was, it was shot in like a month. It's, it's, it stars the only Daily Wire hosts. <laughs> Every single actor they approached for this turned it down because they're like, Good. absolutely not. No, fuck this shit. <laughs> and it is a, it is a, a insightful, insightful look into the soul of Jeremy Boring. He wrote, directed, produced, and starred in this thing. It, it, it was shot right in Nashville, Tennessee. So that is going to be, after the weekend, This is we're going to have a special episode of me diving into what makes Lady Ballers tick. And is it any funny? The answer is not really. But we will, we will go into the production of this movie the way this movie tries to work and and what we can learn about how the Daily Wire is going to try to be producing these sorts of comedy films and try to insert itself into into the ent- entertainment industry. So, 
that right. will be that that will be the start of next week our, our special on lady ballers any 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 closing thoughts on 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 bent key or or the daily wire plus as 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 the daily wire enters the streaming market robert Patrick, you don't have to do this. Like, <laughs> just just let us know you need help. We can take care of you. You know, Patrick, we, we link three we times. Love you. We love you. <laughs> if you need help with the mortgage, we can we can crowdfund. Yeah, it doesn't, we can it doesn't make, matter. We can make this work, buddy. We we can make this work. Uh, anyway, well, that does it for us today. Uh, I hope you Great. learned something about Jeremy Boring, the most forgettable man with the most accurate name. Yep. All right, guys. Bye. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon. Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.